What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, Join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. This is Defending Utah Radio. Defending Utah. Think right and wrong, not right and left. Join Defending Utah because if you're not already on a government watch list, you should be. Shadows of Power is one of the most important books in understanding the history of the conspiracy and how it operates. Shadows of Power by James Perloff exposes the subversive roots and global designs of the Council on Foreign Relations. The CFR passed off as a think tank. This group is a key power behind the throne with hundreds of top appointed government officials drawn from its ranks. This book traces activity from the Wilson to Reagan administrations and is finally available as an audio book through this Defending Utah podcast. Part one of two covering chapters one through six. The Shadows of Power, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the American Decline by James Perloff. Narrated by Daniel Natal. Forward. There is good news and there is bad news. The good news is, this book has been written. The bad news is, it's true. Certain people in high places are going to dispute the validity of this book. They will probably try to discredit it because they have a vested interest in concealing their activities and agenda. But I encourage anyone who reads The Shadows of Power to note its painstaking documentation. This is no opinion piece. It is an assembly of hard facts that state their own conclusions. You can check information in this book against its sources, which are noted. One thing I find interesting is that its revelations are not new. They have always been available, but available like a news story that is tucked away under a small headline on page 183 of a Sunday newspaper. Anyone who goes to a fair-sized library can probably find copies, however dusty, of Admiral Theobald's The Final Secret of Pearl Harbor, or Colin Simpson's The Lusitania, or from Major Jordan's Diaries. John Toland's epic infamy is on bookstore shelves today, and though it may mean microfilm, you can obtain access to the old congressional record. Lots of powerful stories are buried there, and I mean buried, because the mass media ignore them. The book is especially unique because it not only describes scores of underreported events, but elucidates them by showing their common thread, the influence of the internationalist establishment of the United States. If the establishment is elusive in its identity, it certainly has a perceptible face in the Council on Foreign Relations. And that is what the author is centered on. 
this is not just a book about an organization. It is a book about history. You might call it the other side of American history from Wilson on, because it tells the other side of many stories that even the self-proclaimed inside information specialists such as Jack Anderson or Bob Woodward didn't or wouldn't report. It has been said that those who do not know the past are condemned to repeat it. But how can we truly understand an incident in our American past if we are confined to the headline version, designed for public consumption in the interest of protecting the powerful and the few? The Shadows of Power has resurrected eight decades of censored material. Don't let anyone censor it for you now. Read the book and decide for yourself its merit. Your outlook, and perhaps your future itself, will never be the same. James E. Jeffries, United States Congressman, retired. Chapter 1. A Primer on the CFR Speaking before Britain's House of Lords in 1770, Sir William Pitt declared, quote-unquote, There is something behind the throne greater than the king himself, thus giving birth to the phrase, power behind the throne. In 1844, Benjamin Disraeli, England's famed statesman, published a novel entitled Coningsby, or The New Generation. It was well known as a thinly disguised portrayal of his political contemporaries. In it, he wrote, quote, the world is governed by very different personages from what is imagined by those who are not behind the scenes. End quote. Felix Frankfurter, Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, restated this in an American context when he said, quote, The real rulers in Washington are invisible and exercise power from behind the scenes. End quote. Frankfurter was not alone in that assessment. During this century, the existence of a secret U.S. power clique has been acknowledged, however rarely, by prominent Americans. On March 26, 1922, John F. Hyland, mayor of New York City, said in a speech, quote, The real menace of our republic is the invisible government which, like a giant octopus, sprawls its slimy length over our city, state, and nation. At the head is a small group of banking houses generally referred to as international bankers. This little coterie of powerful international bankers virtually run our government for their own selfish ends. End quote. In a letter to an associate dated November 21, 1933, President Franklin D. Roosevelt wrote, quote, The real truth of the matter is, as you and I know, that a financial element in the large centers has owned the government ever since the days of Andrew Jackson. End quote. On February 23, 1954, Senator William Jenner warned in a speech, quote, Today, the path to total dictatorship in the United States can be laid by strictly legal means, unseen and unheard by the Congress, the President, or the people. Outwardly, we have a constitutional government. We have operating within our government and political system, another body representing another form of government, a bureaucratic elite which believes our constitution is outmoded and is sure that it is the winning side. All the strange developments in foreign policy agreements may be traced to this group who are going to make us over to suit their pleasure. This political action group has its own local political support organizations, its own pressure groups, its own vested interests its foothold within our government, and its own propaganda apparatus. End quote. The Establishment There is, of course, in America what we have come to call the Establishment. This expression was popularized by English writer Henry Fairley in an article about Britain's ruling circle. It was used in the U.S. during the Vietnam War as a term of scorn. Today, it is a legitimate word in its own right, defined by the American Heritage Dictionary as, quote, an exclusive group of powerful people who rule a government or society by means of private agreements and decisions, end quote. 
The idea of such an arrangement naturally rankles most Americans, who believe the government should be of the people at large, and not a private few. Who or what is the American establishment? A few books have depicted it, but these very rarely attained much circulation or publicity. Perhaps for no other reason than the establishment prefers to remain behind the scenes. Columnist Edith Kermit Roosevelt, granddaughter of President Theodore Roosevelt, describes it as follows, quote, The word establishment is a general term for the power elite in international finance, business, the professions, and government, largely from the Northeast, who wield most of the power regardless of who was in the White House. Most people are unaware of the existence of this legitimate mafia. Yet the power of the establishment makes itself felt from the professor who seeks a foundation grant to the candidate for a cabinet post or State Department job. It affects the nation's policies in almost every area. End quote. In the public mind, the American establishment is probably most associated with big business and with wealthy old-line families. The sons of these families have long followed a traditional career path that begins with private schools, the most famous being Groton. From these, they have typically proceeded to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, or Columbia, there entering exclusive fraternities such as Yale's Secret of Skull and Bones. Some of the brightest have traveled to Oxford for graduate work as Rhodes Scholars. From academia, they have customarily progressed to Wall Street, perhaps joining an international investment bank such as Chase Manhattan or a prominent law firm or brokerage house. Some of the politically inclined have signed on with establishment think tanks like the Brookings Institution and the Rand Corporation. As they have matured, a few have found themselves on the boards of the vast foundations Rockefeller, Ford, and Carnegie. And ultimately, some have advanced into public service, high positions in the federal government. For the latter, there has long been a requisite, membership in a New York-based group called the Council on Foreign Relations, CFR for short. Since its founding in 1921, the Council has been the establishment's chief link to the U.S. government. It is the focus of this book. What is the CFR? Historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. has called the Council on Foreign Relations a front organization for the heart of the American establishment. David Halberstam in his acclaimed book The Best and the Brightest dubbed it, quote-unquote, the establishment's unofficial club. Newsweek has referred to the CFR's leaders as the, quote-unquote, foreign policy establishment of the U.S. Richard Revere, writing in Esquire magazine, saw them as, quote, a sort of presidium for the part of the establishment that guides our destiny as a nation, end quote. The Council describes itself as a, quote, nonprofit and nonpartisan membership organization dedicated to improved understanding of American foreign policy and international affairs, end quote. It is headquartered at the elegant Harold Pratt House at 58 East 68th Street in New York City. As of June 1987, the CFR had 2,440 members, including many prominent persons in business, government, law, and mass media. Membership is by invitation only. The Council holds frequent meetings and dinners which feature a speech by a guest, usually a ranking statesman from Washington or a foreign country, followed by a discussion with members. These meetings follow a rule of quote-unquote non-attribution, meaning that everything is off the record. Violation of this rule is considered grounds for dismissal from the CFR. The Council explains that its no-quote policy is to encourage candor, but economist John Kenneth Galbraith, himself a former member, has called it a scandal. Why, he asks, should businessmen be briefed by government officials on information not available to the general public, especially since it can be financially advantageous? Pratt House also conducts 15 to 20 study groups every year. Each is assigned a particular foreign policy topic and meets regularly to deliberate it. 
The findings of a study group are customarily published, often in book form. Five times a year, the Council puts out a journal called Foreign Affairs. In addition to serving as a mouthpiece for CFR members, it carries articles, some ghostwritten, by American and foreign dignitaries. Although notorious for being boring, Foreign Affairs is widely read by those involved with making foreign policy and has been called by Time magazine, quote, the most influential periodical in print, end quote. The CFR undertakes other activities, such as its corporate program, which indoctrinates businessmen in international matters. The Council's annual budget is $8.5 million, which is mostly funded by foundation grants, members' dues and contributions, and publication revenue. And it has affiliates called Committees on Foreign Relations in 38 cities around the United States. More than just a club. The Council, while remaining largely unknown to the public, has exercised decisive impact on U.S. policy, especially foreign policy, for several decades. It has achieved this primarily in two ways. The first is by directly supplying personnel for upper echelon government jobs. Few Americans know how a president chooses his administrators. The majority probably trust that aside from an occasional political payoff, the most qualified people are sought and found. But the CFR's contribution cannot be overlooked. Pulitzer Prize winner Theodore White said that the council's, quote, roster of members has for a generation under Republican and Democratic administrations alike been the chief recruiting ground for cabinet-level officials in Washington, end quote. The Christian Science Monitor once observed that, quote, there is a constant flow of its members from private life to public service. Almost half of the council members have been invited to assume official government positions or to act as consultants at one time or another, end quote. Indeed, Joseph Kraft, writing in Harper's, called the council a quote-unquote school for statesmen. David Halberstam put it more wryly, quote, They walk in one door as acquisitive businessmen and come out the other door as statesmen figures, end quote. The historical record speaks even more loudly than these quotes. Through early 1988, 14 secretaries of state, 14 treasury secretaries, 11 defense secretaries, and scores of other federal department heads have been CFR members. Defenders of the council say that such enumerations are misleading because some officials are invited into the council after appointment to government. However, close inspection does not reveal this to be a particularly extenuating factor. Every Secretary of State since 1949 has been a member of the Council. And of these, only one, William P. Rogers, joined the CFR subsequent to appointment. That an individual enrolls in the Council after entering public service does not purge his membership of significance because the organization may still influence him considerably while in office. CFR men who are in high government ranks often staff their departments with Council colleagues. As Anthony Lucas related in the New York Times Magazine in 1971, quote, Everyone knows how fraternity brothers can help other brothers climb the ladder of life. If you want to make foreign policy, there's no better fraternity to belong to than the council. When Henry Stimson, the group's quintessential member, went to Washington in 1940 as Secretary of War, he took with him John McCloy, who was to become Assistant Secretary in charge of personnel. McCloy has recalled, whenever we needed a man, we thumbed through the role of the council members and put through a call to New York. And over the years, the men McCloy called in turn called other council members. End quote. According to the CFR itself, as of June 1987, 318 of its members were current U.S. government officials. The second major way in which the council affects policy is in formulating and marketing recommendations. The CFR disputes that it actually does this. 
Its annual report for 1986 emphatically stated, quote, The Council on Foreign Relations does not determine foreign policy, end quote. The 1987 report declared, quote, The Council takes no institutional positions on issues of foreign policy, end quote. It is true that the Council does not officially advocate policies per se. However, through its books and foreign affair articles, ideas certainly are pushed, even if accompanied by statements that a given work only represents its author's viewpoint. J. Robert Moskin, writing in the March 1987 issue of Town & Country, said the CFR, quote, has long sought to influence U.S. foreign policy, end quote. In his article for Harper's, Joseph Kraft noted that the Council, quote, has been the seat of some basic government decisions, has set the context for many more, end quote. Indeed, it is alleged that if you want to know what the U.S. government will be doing tomorrow, just read Foreign Affairs today. Admiral Chester Ward, former Judge Advocate General of the U.S. Navy, was invited into CFR membership and was shocked by what he discovered. Although he remained in the organization for nearly 20 years, he became one of its sharpest critics. In a 1975 book he co-authored with Phyllis Schlafly, Ward wrote, quote, Once the ruling members of the CFR have decided that the U.S. government should adopt a particular policy, the very substantial research facilities of CFR are put to work to develop arguments, intellectual and emotional, to support the new policy, and to confound and discredit intellectually and politically any opposition. End quote. The Council counters that it is, quote-unquote, host to many views, advocate of none. In other words, it is supposedly like a professor who allows his students to thrash out all sides of an issue. He reveals no prejudice, exerts no censorship. Foreign Affairs has never changed a word in the disclaimer of bias that has prefaced its pages since 1922. Quote, the articles in Foreign Affairs do not represent any consensus of beliefs. We hold that while keeping clear of mere vagaries, Foreign Affairs can do more to inform American public opinion by a broad hospitality to divergent ideas than it can by identifying itself with one school. End quote. The CFR claims to be pluralistic. However, because one can join only through the nomination of others already in the Council, the group naturally tends to remain homogenous. J. Robert Moskin recounts of the CFR's early days, quote, Although the council itself never took a position, its members' bias was apparent to all. End quote. Richard Barnett, himself a CFR member, wrote in 1972 that, quote, In recent years, a few symbolic policy critics have actually been recruited. But failure to be asked to be a member of the council has been regarded for a generation as a presumption of unsuitability for high office in the national security bureaucracy. End quote. And even the New York Times, itself regarded as an establishment organ, has acknowledged that the Council has a quote-unquote uniform direction. If the CFR does possess a distinct viewpoint, Americans should know about it, because officials of the U.S. government, drawn so frequently from the Council's ranks, are apt to take that viewpoint to Washington with them. Charges have been repeatedly leveled at the Council that it holds two particularly unwholesome doctrines. Of Globalism the first of these is that the CFR advocates the creation of a world government. The ultimate implication of this is that all power would be centralized in a single global authority. National identities and boundaries, including our own, would be eliminated. It is said that while the CFR does not always espouse this idea directly, it does at least insinuate it, as by suggesting measures that would serve as stepping stones toward this end. The charge is easily substantiated. Anyone who cares to examine back issues of foreign affairs will have no difficulty finding hundreds of articles that pushed, whether zealously or by soft sell, this concept of globalism. But he will be hard-pressed to locate even one essay opposing it. 
This, of course, deflates foreign affairs' claim of, quote-unquote, a broad hospitality of divergent ideas. According to Admiral Ward, the CFR has a goal, quote, submergence of U.S. sovereignty and national independence into an all-powerful one-world government, end quote. He wrote that, quote, this lust to surrender the sovereignty and independence of the United States is pervasive throughout most of the membership. And he added, in the entire CFR lexicon, there is no term of revulsion carrying a meaning so deep as America first, end quote. Rather than stand on allegations, let us draw samples from the CFR's own works. An article in the inaugural issue of Foreign Affairs, September 1922, condemned what it called, quote, the dubious doctrines expressed in the phrase safety first and America first, end quote. An article in the second issue, December 1922, declared, quote, Obviously, there is going to be no peace or prosperity for mankind so long as it remains divided into 50 or 60 independent states. Equally obvious, there is going to be no steady progress in civilization or self-government among the more backward peoples until some kind of international system is created which will put an end to the diplomatic struggles incident to the attempt of every nation to make itself secure. The real problem today is that of world government. End quote. A 1944 Council publication, American Public Opinion and Post-War Security Commitments, noted, quote, the sovereignty fetish is still so strong in the public mind that there would appear to be little chance of winning popular assent to American membership in anything approaching a superstate organization. Much will depend on the kind of approach which is used in further popular education. End quote. In 1959, the Council issued a position paper entitled Study No. 7, Basic Aims of U.S. Foreign Policy. This document proposed that the U.S. seek to quote-unquote build a new international order. The steps it cited as necessary to achieve this were, quote, 1. Search for an international order in which the freedom of nations is recognized as interdependent and in which many policies are jointly undertaken by free world states with differing political, economic, and social systems, and including states labeling themselves as socialist. 2. Safeguard U.S. security through preserving a system of bilateral agreements and regional arrangements. 3. Maintain and gradually increase the authority of the U.N. 4. Make more effective use of the International Court of Justice, jurisdiction of which should be increased by withdrawal of reservations by member nations on matters judged to be domestic. In 1974, Foreign Affairs carried an article by Richard N. Gardner called The Hard Road to World Order. Gardner complained that, quote, We are witnessing an outbreak of short-sighted nationalism that seems oblivious to the economic, political, and moral implications of interdependence. End quote. He outlined a strategy by which, quote, the House of World Order will have to be built from the bottom up rather than from the top down. End quote. He explained that, quote, an end run around national sovereignty eroding it piece by piece will accomplish much more than the old fashioned frontal assault. End quote. And in the fall 1984 foreign affairs, Kurt Waldheim, former Secretary General of the UN and former Nazi, writes, quote, As long as states insist that they are the supreme arbiters of their destinies, that as sovereign entities their decisions are subject to no higher authority, international organizations will never be able to guarantee the maintenance of peace. End quote. Review of the CFR's publication history unearths countless statements similar to the foregoing. Naturally, everyone would like to see harmony and peace. But if the United States traded its sovereignty for membership in a world government, what would become of our freedoms as expressed in the Bill of Rights? How would the rulers of this world government be selected? And how could a single central authority equitably govern a planet that is so diversified? These are unanswered questions that have darkened the Council's crusade for globalism. Of Communism 
A second more controversial accusation against the Council is that it has been soft on communism. So soft, in fact, that its members have often exerted their influence on behalf of the international communist movement. This charge would appear to be untenable at first, considering that the establishment centered on Wall Street is conventionally regarded as the antithesis of the radical left. But here again, review of the CFR's house organ, Foreign Affairs, proves very instructive. One finds that dozens of Marxists and socialists have published articles in that journal. Even such titans of communism as Leon Trotsky, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, and Yugoslavia's Josip Broz Tito. Indeed, when Trotsky died, he was eulogized in Foreign Affairs as follows. Quote, he gave us in a time when our race is woefully in need of such restoratives, the vision of a man. Of that, there is no more doubt than of his great place in history. End quote. On the other hand, if one searches foreign affairs for an American author whose name is popularly associated with patriotism or anti-communism, he looks all but in vain. Lenin so admired the first issue of the publication that he underscored passages in some of its articles. The Council today proudly possesses Lenin's original copy. The CFR's annual report for 1986 noted, quote, We were intrigued to read news reports that Mr. Gorbachev himself was reading articles excerpted from foreign affairs in preparation for the meetings with President Reagan, the Geneva summit of November 1985, end quote. The Soviets were even placing ads for their airline Aeroflot in foreign affairs 20 years before Glasnost. Affinity has always existed between Marxists and the Council. Quick proof of this is found in the yearly roster of guest speakers at Pratt House. The 1959 report, for example, listed such leftist luminaries as Fidel Castro, Anastas I. Mikoyan of the USSR, Oskar Lenga of Poland State Council, Yugoslavia's Marko Nikezic, and a variety of other socialists. The 1984 report noted the following among the year's speakers. Robert Mugabe, Marxist Prime Minister of Zimbabwe, Daniel Ortega of Nicaragua, Guillermo Ungo, leader of the El Salvador Revolutionaries, Petra Kelly of Germany's far-left Green Party, and three officials from the People's Republic of China. To be sure, many non-communists also appear at the Council, but the hosting of Marxists shows that the CFR has no aversion to them, and vice versa. In February 1987, a delegation of top Council members traveled to the USSR at Moscow's invitation, meeting Gorbachev and other Soviet officials. The visit was closely followed by the New York Times. Perhaps nothing demonstrates the rapport between the CFR and the Soviet Union more graphically than a 1961 photo appearing in The Wise Men, a book published in 1986 by Simon & Schuster. The picture shows John McCloy, then chairman of the council, and Soviet dictator Nikita Khrushchev swimming together at the latter's private dacha in the Black Sea. A grinning Khrushchev has his arm around a grinning McCloy who, according to the text, was wearing swimming trunks loaned him by the premier himself. The Council's defenders say the amicable exchanges with Marxists are simply an indication of its broad-minded pluralism. They point out that CFR members were among the Cold War's vanguard, and that Foreign Affairs has printed a multitude of articles criticizing communism in the Soviet Union. It is true that such articles have found space in Foreign Affairs, some of them sincere beyond doubt. In 1980, the periodical even ran a piece by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, However, in looking over the anti-communist articles from the Cold War period when the bulk of them appeared, it is apparent that the gist of their conclusions was this, that the best defense against communism would be a new world order, a stronger UN, regional alliances, and other building blocks of world government. To the CFR, then, the threat of communism seems to have been little more than a marketable rationale for its globalistic aims. Here is how Edith Kermit Roosevelt summed it up in 1961, quote, What is the establishment's viewpoint? 
Through the Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy administrations, its ideology is constant, that the best way to fight communism is by a one-world socialist state governed by experts like themselves. The result has been policies which favor the growth of the superstate, gradual surrender of United States sovereignty to the United Nations, and a steady retreat in the face of communist aggression. End quote. Senator Jesse Helms, after noting the CFR's place within the establishment, put it this way before the Senate in December 1987, quote, The viewpoint of the establishment today is called globalism. Not so long ago, this viewpoint was called the one-world view by its critics. The phrase is no longer fashionable among sophisticates. Yet the phrase one world is still apt because nothing has changed in the minds and actions of those promoting policies consistent with its fundamental tenets. Mr. President, in the globalist point of view, nation-states and national boundaries do not count for anything. Political philosophies and political principles seem to become simply relative. Indeed, even constitutions are irrelevant to the exercise of power. In this point of view, the activities of international financial and industrial forces should be oriented to bringing this one-world design with the convergence of the Soviet and American systems as its centerpiece into being. End quote. This book contends that the accusations against the Council on Foreign Relations, the pursuit of one-world government, and receptiveness to communism are true. It further contends that due to the Council's heavy presence in Washington, these factors have acted mightily upon the course of American foreign policy in this century a course frequently damned by disaster that has seen the United States eroded in strength and its allies sometimes vanquished altogether. We have thus far quoted a number of references to the Council in well-known publications such as Esquire and the New York Times. However, mass media comment on the CFR is extremely rare. No feature article about the group appeared in any major journal or newspaper during its first 36 years. Today, probably not one American in 500 can identify the CFR despite the fact that it is arguably the most powerful political entity in the United States. This by itself should raise questions, let alone eyebrows. Knowing the Council's record of action and influence demystifies a number of otherwise puzzling episodes in U.S. history. We shall proceed to inspect that record, but it is instructive to first know something about the people and events that led to the Council's founding in 1921. Chapter 2. Background to the Beginning International Bankers and Central Banks An international banker is one who, among other things, loans money to the governments of nations. Lending to governments can be particularly profitable for several reasons. First, a government borrows far more than an individual or business. Second, a government has unique tools with which it can guarantee repayment, such as the levying of taxes. Third, a government may requite its debt through a medium more desirable than cash, by granting the banker certain privileges, for example, or giving him a say in policy. No turn of events is more lucrative for an international banker than war, because nothing generates more government borrowing faster. International banking was probably best epitomized by the Rothschilds, Europe's most famous financial dynasty. Meyer Amschel Rothschild, 1743-1812, retained one of his five sons at the home bank in Germany and dispatched the other four to run offices in England, France, Austria, and Italy. The Rothschilds harvested great riches during the 19th century by loaning to these and to other countries. Sometimes they, or their agents, financed both sides of armed conflicts, such as the Franco-Prussian War and the War Between the States. As national creditors, they earned tremendous political influence. 
Essential to controlling a government is the establishment of a central bank with a monopoly on the country's supply of money and credit. Meyer Rothschild is said to have remarked, quote, Let me issue and control a nation's money, and I care not who writes its laws. End quote. As Gary Allen relates in his bestseller, None Dare Call It Conspiracy, quote, The Bank of England, Bank of France, and Bank of Germany were not owned by their respective governments as everyone imagines, but were privately owned monopolies granted by the heads of state, usually in return for loans. End quote. Georgetown professor Dr. Carol Quigley, who was himself close to the establishment, dealt extensively with central banks in his 1966 book, Tragedy and Hope. He wrote, quote, It must not be felt that these heads of the world's chief central banks were substantive powers in world finance. They were not. Rather, they were technicians and agents of the dominant investment bankers of their own countries, who had raised them up and were perfectly capable of throwing them down. End quote. Quigley further noted, quote, the powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert, by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences. End quote. The Rothschilds, as the foremost quote-unquote power behind the throne of Europe's central banks, savored the thought of a similar arrangement in the United States. According to Gustavus Myers in his History of the Great American Fortunes, quote, Under the surface, the Rothschilds long had a powerful influence in dictating American financial laws. The law records show that they were the power in the old Bank of the United States. End quote. However, the Bank of the United States, 1816 to 1836, an early attempt to saddle the nation with a privately controlled central bank, was abolished by President Andrew Jackson. He declared, quote, The bold effort the present bank had made to control the government, the distress it had wantonly produced, are but premonitions of a fate that awaits the American people should they be deluded into a perpetuation of this institution or the establishment of another like it. End quote. America heeded Jackson's warning for the remainder of the century. The tide began to turn, however, with the linking of European and U.S. banking interests and the growth and power of America's money barons such as J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, and Bernard Baruch. In 1902, German banker Paul Warburg, an associate of the Rothschilds, migrated to the United States. He soon became a partner in America's most powerful banking firm, Kuhn Loeb & Company. He was married to the daughter of Solomon Loeb, one of its founders. The head of Kuhn Loeb was Jacob Schiff whose family ties with the Rothschilds went back a century. While earning an annual salary of $500,000, a tidy sum even by today's standards, Paul Warburg lectured widely and published pamphlets on the need for an American central banking system. The Panic of 1907 was artificially triggered to elicit public acceptance of this idea. Snowballing bank runs began after J.P. Morgan spread a rumor about the insolvency of the Trust Company of America. In 1949, historian Frederick Lewis Allen reported in Life magazine, quote, Certain chroniclers have arrived at the ingenious conclusion that the Morgan interests took advantage of the unsettled conditions during the autumn of 1907 to precipitate the panic, guiding it shrewdly as it progressed so that it would kill off rival banks and consolidate the preeminence of the banks within the Morgan orbit, end quote. Allen himself did not accept this explanation, but he noted, quote, The lesson of the panic of 1907 was clear though not for some six years was it destined to be embodied in legislation, the United States gravely needed a central banking system. End quote. Congressman Charles Lindbergh Sr., father of the famous aviator, declared in 1913, 
quote, the money trust caused the 1907 panic and thereby forced Congress to create a national monetary commission, end quote. Footnote. The term money trust, in popular use at the time, referred to the coterie of financial monopolists based on Wall Street. It included, among others, Rockefeller, Morgan, Warburg, and Schiff. End footnote. Heading the commission was Senator Nelson Aldrich. Aldrich was known as the international banker's mouthpiece on Capitol Hill. His daughter married John D. Rockefeller, Jr. His grandson, Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller, who became vice president in 1974, was named for him. After the commission spent almost two years studying central banking in Europe, Aldrich met secretly with Paul Warburg and top representatives of the Morgan and Rockefeller interests. This took place on Morgan's hunting club on Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia. There, the plan was formulated for America's central bank, what would come to be known as the Federal Reserve. One of those in attendance at Jekyll Island was Frank Vanderlip, president of the Rockefeller's National City Bank. Twenty-five years later, Vanderlip wrote in the Saturday Evening Post, quote, There was an occasion near the close of 1910 when I was as secretive, indeed as furtive, as any conspirator. I do not feel it is any exaggeration to speak of our secret expedition to Jekyll Island as the occasion of the actual conception of what eventually became the Federal Reserve System. We were told to leave our last names behind us. We were told further that we should avoid dining together on the night of our departure. We were instructed to come out one at a time and as unobtrusively as possible to the terminal of the New Jersey Littoral of the Hudson, where Senator Aldrich's private car would be in readiness, attached to the rear end of the train for the South. Once aboard the private car, we began to observe the taboo that had been fixed on last names. Discovery, we knew, simply must not happen, or else all our time and effort would be wasted. End quote. After the Jekyll Island meeting, Senator Aldrich proposed the plan to Congress. His connections to the banking establishment raised enough suspicion that the Aldrich bill did not pass, but a similar measure under another name was subsequently pushed through. The Federal Reserve became law in December 1913. Ostensibly, the system was to act as guardian of reserves for banks. It was granted control over interest rates and the size of the national money supply. The public was induced to accept the Fed by claims that given these powers, it would stabilize the economy, preventing further panics and bank runs. It did nothing of the kind. Not only has our nation suffered through the Great Depression and numerous recessions, but inflation and federal debt, negligible problems before the Fed came into existence, have plagued America ever since. Congressman Lindbergh was one of the most forthright opponents of the Federal Reserve Act. He warned Congress, quote, this act establishes the most gigantic trust on earth. When the president signs this act, the invisible government by the money power proven to exist by the money trust investigation will be legalized. The money power overawes the legislative and executive forces of the nation and of the states. I have seen these forces exerted during the different stages of this bill. This is the Aldrich bill in disguise. End quote. Later, Congressman Lewis McFadden, who chaired the House Committee on Banking and Currency from 1920 to 1931, would declare, quote, When the Federal Reserve Act was passed, the people of these United States did not perceive that a world banking system was being set up here. A superstate controlled by international bankers and international industrialists acting together to enslave the world for their own pleasure. Every effort has been made by the Fed to conceal its powers, but the truth is, the Fed has usurped the government, end quote. The average American probably does not know or even think very much about our Federal Reserve System, but a few things should be noted about it. Although it is called, quote-unquote, federal, 
it is privately owned. It has never received a meaningful audit from an independent source. It makes its own policies and is not subject to the President or the Congress. Private banks within the system select two-thirds of the directors of the 12 Federal Reserve Banks. The Federal Reserve Board chooses the rest. As to the Federal Reserve Board itself, its members are appointed by the President and approved by the Senate. But once in office, they serve 14-year terms. Fed chairmen have routinely come from the New York banking community and on its recommendations, and the great majority have been members of the CFR. Paul Warburg was appointed to the original board, and Benjamin Strong of the Morgan Interest, who had been at Jekyll Island with him, headed the New York Fed, the system's nucleus. How did the Federal Reserve benefit the financiers who secretly designed it? First, in its capacity as overseer and supplier of reserves, it gave their banks access to public funds in the U.S. Treasury, enhancing their capacity to lend and collect interest. Furthermore, by staffing the Federal Reserve's management with themselves or their associates, the international bankers gained effective control over the nation's money supply and interest rates, and thus over its economic life. Indeed, the Fed is authorized to create money, and thus inflate, at will. According to the Constitution, only Congress may issue money or regulate its value. The Federal Reserve Act, however, places these functions in the hands of private bankers to their perpetual profit. Congressman Lindbergh explained, quote, The new law will create inflation whenever the banks want inflation. It may not do so immediately, but the trusts want a period of inflation because all the stocks they hold have gone down. Now, if the trusts can get another period of inflation, they figure they can unload the stocks on the people at high prices during the excitement and then bring on a panic and buy them back at low prices. The people may not know it immediately, but the day of reckoning is only a few years removed. End quote. That day of reckoning, of course, came in 1929, and the Federal Reserve has since created an endless series of booms and busts by the strategic tightening and relaxation of money and credit. Finally, the Fed was empowered to buy and sell government securities and to loan to member banks so that they might themselves purchase such securities, thus greatly multiplying the potential for government indebtedness to the banking community. However, if Washington was to incur debts, it had to have some means of paying them off. The solution was income tax. Prior to 1913, there was no income tax in America except during the war between the states and early Reconstruction period. The U.S. government survived on other revenue sources such as tariffs and excise taxes. As a result, it could neither spend nor borrow heavily. Because income tax had been declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in 1895, it had to be instituted by constitutional amendment. The man who brought forward the amendment in Congress was the same senator who proposed the plan for the Federal Reserve, Nelson Aldrich. Why did the American people consent to income tax? Initially, it was nominal. A mere 1% of income under $20,000, a figure few made in those days. Naturally, there were assurances that it would never increase. Another pitch used to sell the tax was that being graduated, it would soak the rich. But Senator Aldrich's backing of the amendment implied that the rich desired it. America's billionaire elite, of course, are notorious for sidestepping the IRS. The Pecora hearings of 1933, for example, revealed that J.P. Morgan had not paid any income tax in 1931-32. When Nelson Rockefeller was being confirmed as vice president under Gerald Ford, the fact arose that he had not paid any income tax in 1970. One of the leading devices by which the wealthy dodge taxes is the channeling of their fortunes into tax-free foundations. 
The major foundations, though commonly regarded as charitable institutions, often use their grant-making powers to advance the interests of their founders. The Rockefeller Foundation, for example, has poured millions into the Council on Foreign Relations, which in turn serves the establishment's main bridge of influence to the U.S. government. By the time the income tax became law in 1913, the Rockefeller and Carnegie Foundations were already operating. Income tax did not soak the rich. It soaked the middle class. Because it was a graduated tax, it tended to prevent anyone from rising into affluence. Thus, it acted to consolidate the wealth of the entrenched interests and protect them from new competition. The year 1913 was an ominous one. There now existed the means to loan the government colossal sums, the Federal Reserve, and the means to exact repayment, income tax. All that was needed now was a good reason for Washington to borrow. In 1914, World War I erupted on the European continent. America eventually participated, and as a result, her national debt soared from $1 billion to $25 billion. Many historians would have us believe that this trio of events, the income tax, the Federal Reserve, and the war, was a coincidence. But too often, history has been written by authors financed by foundations in books manufactured by establishment publishing houses. Many more coincidences were yet to trouble the American people in this century. Wilson and House In 1913, Woodrow Wilson became president. His book, The New Freedom, was published that same year. In it, he wrote, quote, Some of the biggest men in the United States in the field of commerce and manufacture are afraid of something. They know that there is a power somewhere so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive, that they had better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it. End quote. Wilson knew this force, intimately. His predecessor, Republican President William Howard Taft, had been against a central bank, saying he would veto a bill proposing one. For this reason, the international bankers sought to replace Taft with a submissive candidate. Woodrow Wilson was rocketed from president of Princeton University to governor of New Jersey in 1911 to the Democratic presidential nominee in 1912. Among his weighty financial backers were Cleveland Dodge of the Rockefellers National City Bank, Jacob Schiff of Kuhn Loeb, and Bernard Baruch. According to one eyewitness, Baruch brought Wilson to Democratic Party headquarters in New York in 1912, quote, leading him like one would a poodle on a string, end quote. Wilson received an indoctrination course from the leaders convened there, during which he agreed in principle to do the following if elected. Support the projected Federal Reserve. Support income tax. Lend an ear to advice should war break out in Europe. Lend an ear to advice on who should occupy his cabinet. Paul showed incumbent President Taft as a clear favorite over the stiff-looking professor from Princeton. So to divide the Republican vote, the establishment put money behind Teddy Roosevelt on the Progressive Party ticket. J.P. Morgan and Company was the financial backbone of the Roosevelt campaign. The strategy succeeded. Republican ballots were split between Taft and Roosevelt, and Woodrow Wilson became president with only 42% of the popular vote. During his White House terms, Wilson was continuously guided by a frontman for the international banking community, Colonel Edward M. House. House did not serve in the military. His title was strictly honorary. The president's top advisor, he was called, quote-unquote, Assistant President House by Harper's Weekly. So close was the relationship between the two that Wilson said of House, quote, Mr. House is my second personality. He is my independent self. His thoughts and mine are one. 
If I were in his place, I would do just as he suggested. If anyone thinks he is reflecting my opinion by whatever action he takes, they are welcome to the conclusion. End quote. Under House's watchful eye, Wilson paid off as arranged. House was reported to have handpicked his cabinet. At Wilson's first cabinet meeting, Franklin K. Lane introduced himself, saying, quote, My name is Lane, Mr. President. I believe I am Secretary of the Interior. End quote. Wilson's first year in office, 1913, saw institution of both income tax and the Federal Reserve, although the former slightly preceded his inauguration. According to Charles Seymour, House's biographer, the colonel was, quote-unquote, the unseen guardian angel of the Federal Reserve Act. He was regularly in touch with Paul Warburg while the legislation was being written and maneuvered through Congress. In light of President Wilson's dependence on his advisor, it is instructive to know something about House's convictions. According to another of his biographers, Arthur D. Howden Smith, House believed that, quote, the Constitution, product of 18th-century minds and the quasi-classical medieval conceptions of republics, was thoroughly outdated, that the country would be better off if the Constitution could be scrapped and rewritten. But as a realist, he knew that this was impossible in the existing state of political education. End quote. House wrote a novel published anonymously in 1912 entitled Philip Drew, Administrator. Later, he acknowledged the book as his own. The novel's hero, Philip Drew, rules America and introduces a variety of radical changes. Among these are a graduated income tax and a central bank. George Virek, in The Strangest Friendship in History in 1932, wrote of Philip Drew, quote, Out of this book have come the directives which revolutionized our lives. The Wilson administration transferred the colonel's ideas from the pages of fiction to the pages of history. End quote. What may seem surprising is that the character Philip Drew was attempting to install what he called, quote-unquote, socialism as dreamed of by Karl Marx. This becomes less incongruous when one realizes that income tax and central banking were both called for by Marx in the Communist Manifesto, which laid out a ten-plank plan for establishing a communist state. Plank 2 was, quote-unquote, a heavy progressive graduated income tax. Plank 5 was, quote-unquote, centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. Thus, in 1913, America adopted two of Marx's precepts. This is certainly not to imply that House and Wilson were communists. However, it does once again demonstrate that finance capitalism has a great deal in common with the ideology that is supposedly its opposite. World War I and the League of Nations Another objective specified in Philip Drew was a quote-unquote League of Nations. This, of course, was precisely the name given to the world body created at Woodrow Wilson's suggestion during the 1919 Paris Peace Conference. Just as the 1907 panic was employed to justify a central bank, so was World War I used to justify world government. It is certainly true that a number of America's money barons, including Wilson's campaign backers, profited from the war. The president appointed Bernard Baruch head of the War Industries Board, a position never authorized by Congress. As such, Baruch became the economic czar of the United States, having dictatorial power over the nation's businesses. He, like the Rockefellers, is said to have reaped some $200 million from the war. Top Wilson backer Cleveland Dodd shipped munitions to the Allies, and J.P. Morgan supplied them with hundreds of millions in loans, which, of course, U.S. entry into the war helped protect. But profit was not the only evident motive behind our participation in the conflict. Well before our declaration of war, the idea of a world government to ensure peace was being promoted in America. 
In the 1950s, U.S. government investigators examined old records of the powerful Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a longtime promoter of globalism. They discovered that several years before the outbreak of World War I, Carnegie trustees had hoped to involve the United States in a general war to set the stage for world government. Prior to 1917, America had stayed clear of European wars. George Washington, in his farewell address, had warned the nation against entangling foreign alliances. This council was heeded only too happily by the American people, millions of whom had come to this country to escape oppression overseas. And naturally, no one wanted to fight a war of dubious origins. It was therefore necessary to devise an incident that would supply provocation. This occurred when a German submarine sank the British ocean liner Lusitania on its way from New York to England. 128 Americans on board perished, and this tragedy, more than any other event, was used to arouse anti-German sentiment in the United States. Certain facts, however, were denied the public. Thanks to the work of British author Colin Simpson in his book The Lusitania, much of the truth is known today. The Lusitania was transporting six million rounds of ammunition, plus other war munitions, to Britain, which is why the Germans sank it. Internal explosions caused the ship to go down in just 18 minutes after a single torpedo hit. This information was suppressed at subsequent hearings that investigated the sinking. Woodrow Wilson ordered the ship's original manifest which listed the munitions to be hidden away in Treasury archives. Even more pertinent is evidence that the ship was deliberately sent to disaster. Before the incident, Winston Churchill, then head of the British Admiralty, had ordered a report done to predict the political impact if a passenger ship was sunk carrying Americans. And the following conversation took place between Colonel House and Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Minister. Grey, what will America do if the Germans sink an ocean liner with American passengers on board? House, I believe that a flame of indignation would sweep the United States, and that by itself would be sufficient to carry us into war. The British had cracked Germany's naval code and knew the approximate whereabouts of all U-boats in the vicinity of the British Isles. According to Commander Joseph Kenworthy, then in British Naval Intelligence, quote, The Lusitania was deliberately sent at considerably reduced speed into an area where a U-boat was known to be waiting and with her escorts withdrawn, end quote. It should be noted that the Germans had taken out large ads in the New York papers in an effort to dissuade Americans from boarding the Lusitania. Their navy was attempting to stop war supplies from reaching England, just as the British navy was doing to them. Who was the real aggressor in the war is a matter of debate. Had America not participated, the belligerents of Europe would probably have reached a settlement, as those nations had been doing for centuries. Woodrow Wilson was re-elected in 1916 on the slogan, quote-unquote, he kept us out of war. But those words proved short-lived. Colonel House in England had already negotiated a secret agreement committing us to join the conflict. When war was declared, propaganda went full tilt. All Huns were fanged serpents, and all Americans against the war were traitors. The U.S. mobilization broke the battlefield stalemate, leading to Germany's surrender. The Paris Peace Conference of 1919 settled the aftermath of the war. It resulted in the Versailles Treaty, which required Germany to pay the victors severe reparations, even the pensions of Allied soldiers. This devastated the German economy in the 1920s and paved the way for Adolf Hitler's rise. Woodrow Wilson brought to the conference his famous 14 points. It was the 14th point that carried the payload, a proposal for a quote-unquote general association of nations. From this sprang the League of Nations. It was the first step toward the ultimate goal of the international bankers, a world government, supported, no doubt, by a world central bank. 
The concept of the league did not originate with Wilson. Ray Stannard Baker, Wilson's official biographer, said that, quote, Practically nothing, not a single idea in the covenant of the league was original with the president. End quote. It was Colonel House who had written the covenant. According to Charles Seymour, the president, quote, approved the House draft almost in its entirety, and his own rewriting of it was practically confined to phraseology. End quote. In 1917, House had assembled a group in New York called the Inquiry, consisting of about 100 men. Under the direction of House's brother-in-law, Sidney Mises, they developed plans for the peace settlement. Some 20 members of the Inquiry went with Wilson to Paris in 1919, as did House and bankers Paul Warburg and Bernard Baruch. The League of Nations was successfully instituted. A number of countries that enrolled had powerful internationalist forces operating within them. But the United States could not join unless the Versailles Treaty received Senate ratification, a condition that the U.S. Constitution stipulates for any treaty. The Senate balked. It was clear that the League couldn't guarantee peace any more than marriage guarantees that spouses won't quarrel. For the League to be strong enough to enforce world security, it would also have to be strong enough to threaten our national sovereignty. And freedom-loving Americans wanted none of that. They had done their part to help win the war, and saw no reason why they should further entwine their fate with the dictatorships and monarchies of the old world. Chapter 3 the Council's Birth and Early Links to Totalitarianism Well before the Senate's vote on ratification, news of its resistance to the League of Nations reached Colonel House, members of the Inquiry, and other U.S. internationalists gathered in Paris. It was clear that America would not join the realm of world government unless something was done to shift its climate of opinion. Under House's direction, these men, along with some members of the British delegation to the conference, held a series of meetings— on May 30, 1919, at a dinner at the Majestic Hotel, it was resolved that a quote-unquote Institute of International Affairs would be formed. It would have two branches, one in the United States and one in England. The American branch became incorporated in New York as the Council on Foreign Relations on July 29, 1921. As a note of interest, the British branch became known as the Royal Institute of International Affairs, RIIA. Its leadership was controlled by members of the Round Table, a semi-secret internationalist group headquartered in London. The RIIA is the CFR's counterpart and has been dominant in British politics for over half a century. Were it the subject of this book, a great deal could be said about it. The CFR and RIIA were originally intended to be affiliates, but became independent bodies, although they have always maintained close and formal ties. In 1922, the Council stated its purpose as follows. The Council on Foreign Relations aims to provide a continuous conference on the international aspects of America's political, economic, and financial problems. It is simply a group of men concerned in spreading a knowledge of international relations, and in particular, in developing a reasoned American foreign policy. This self-description is quite similar to many others the Council has issued over the years, invariably conveying the idea that the CFR is merely a chatty foreign affairs club whose aims are innocuous and whose outlook is blandly impartial. If this is all the Council amounts to, it is curious that the establishment has expended tens of millions of dollars on it. One does not have to look very hard to determine that the CFR in the 1920s was very unobjectively lobbying for American participation in the League of Nations. An article in the first issue of Foreign Affairs was entitled The Next American Contribution to Civilization. Can we all guess what that was to be? Quote, 
Our government should enter heartily into the existing League of Nations, take a sympathetic share in every discussion broached in the League, and be ready to take more than its share in all the responsibilities which unanimous action of the nations constituting the League might impose. End quote. Of course, not every article in Foreign Affairs openly boosted world government, which would have overstated the case. But typically, the journal printed one or two that did, mixed in with dry dissertations on a variety of international topics. No conspiracy lurked behind such titles as Singapore's Mineral Resources or The Soya Bean in International Trade. However, many of the particularized articles did present solutions pointing toward globalism. Colonel House, of course, was one of the CFR's founding members. As to the others, Robert D. Schultzinger in The Wise Men of Foreign Affairs, The History of the Council on Foreign Relations, noted that, quote, nearly all of them were bankers and lawyers, end quote. This stereotype was unchanged 50 years later. John Franklin Campbell wrote in New York Magazine in 1971 that membership in the CFR, quote, usually means that you are a partner in an investment bank or law firm with occasional troubleshooting assignments in government, end quote. This raises a question. Why should foreign affairs lie almost exclusively in the province of these two professions? The CFR's founders were specialized in yet another way, association with J.P. Morgan and Company. Dr. Carol Quigley, referred to earlier, had unique insight into the Council's founding. He was very close to members of the Roundtable, which was the core of the CFR's counterpart group in Britain. In the early 1960s, he was allowed to inspect its secret records. Quigley termed the CFR, quote, a front group for J.P. Morgan and Company in association with the very small American Roundtable group, end quote. The founding president of the CFR was John W. Davis, who was J.P. Morgan's personal attorney and a multimillionaire in his own right. Founding vice president was Paul Kravath, whose law firm also represented the Morgan interests. Morgan partner Russell Leffingwell would later become the council's first chairman. A variety of other Morgan partners, attorneys, and agents crowded the CFR's early membership roles. Conscious of such uniformity, the council's steering committee moved to distinguish the roster by adding college professors. However, most of these had been members of Colonel House's inquiry. Furthermore, they hailed from campuses beholden to J.P. Morgan. As Dr. Quigley observed, quote, The Wall Street contacts with these professors were created originally from Morgan's influence in handling large academic endowments. End quote. Bolshevik Connections Another denominator common to many of the early CFR members was support, material, or moral, for the Bolsheviks in Russia. A revolution, like any other substantive undertaking, cannot succeed without financing. The 1917 Russian Revolution was no exception. It is now well known that the Germans helped Lenin, who had been exiled by the Tsar into Russia on a sealed train, carrying some $5 million in gold. The Germans, of course, had an ulterior motive. Tsarist Russia had been fighting them on the side of the Allies, and a successful revolution would mean one less adversary for Germany to contend with. Less widely known is the U.S. contribution. Probably the best reference on this is Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution by Anthony Sutton, former fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. It is based on assiduous research, including a deep probe into State Department files. While Sutton's focus is not on the CFR, comparing his findings with the Council's early rosters proves revealing indeed. His book is actually part of a trilogy, the other two volumes examining Wall Street's links to Franklin D. Roosevelt and to Nazi Germany. Just when American patronage of the Bolsheviks began is probably unknown. But an excerpt from Colonel House's prophetic Philip Drew is not a bad place to start the story. Quote, 
Sometimes in his dreams, Drew thought of Russia and its vastness, of the ignorance and hopeless outlook of the people, and wondered when her deliverance would come. There was, he knew, great work for someone to do in that despotic land. End quote. Leon Trotsky, who was living in New York City at the time Tsar Nicholas abdicated, was able to return to Russia only because Woodrow Wilson intervened to secure him an American passport. On November 28, 1917, with the Bolsheviks newly in power, House cabled Wilson that any newspaper accounts describing Russia as a new enemy should be suppressed. On that same day, Wilson declared there should be no interference with the revolution. Although the Bolsheviks' atrocities prevented the U.S. from officially recognizing their new government, Wilson continued to express his support for them, to the shock of many people. Jacob Schiff, the head of Kuhn Loban Company, heavily bankrolled the revolution. This was reported by White Russian General Arsena Degulevich in his book Tsarism and the Revolution. The New York Journal American stated on February 3, 1949, quote, Today it is estimated, even by Jacob's grandson John Schiff, a prominent member of New York society, that the old man sank about $20 million for the final triumph of Bolshevism in Russia. Other New York banking firms also contributed. End quote. Schiff died before the CFR's incorporation, but his son Mortimer and his partner, Federal Reserve architect Paul Warburg, both became founding council members. By quote unquote founding member, we refer to anyone who appeared on the council's original 210 man membership role in 1922. Examination of that list unveils a rogues gallery of Bolshevik supporters. In the summer of 1917, to the city of Petrograd, nerve center of the Russian Revolution, came one of the strangest Red Cross missions in history. It consisted of 15 Wall Street financiers and attorneys led by Federal Reserve Director William Boyce Thompson, plus a small contingent of doctors and nurses. The medical team, discovering that they were but a front for political activities, returned home in protest after one month. The businessmen remained in Petrograd. The mission supplied financing, first for the socialist regime of Alexander Kerensky, and then for the Bolsheviks who supplanted him. In his biography of William Boyce Thompson, Herman Hagedorn produced photographic evidence that J.P. Morgan cabled Thompson $1 million through the National City Bank branch at Petrograd, the only bank in Russia the Bolsheviks did not nationalize. What became of the $1 million? The Washington Post of February 2, 1918 supplies the answer. Under the headline, Gives Bolsheviki a Million, it noted, quote, William B. Thompson, who was in Petrograd from July until November last, has made a personal contribution of $1 million to the Bolsheviki for the purpose of spreading their doctrine in Germany and Austria. Mr. Thompson had an opportunity to study Russian conditions as the head of the American Red Cross mission, expenses of which were also largely defrayed by his personal contributions. Mr. Thompson deprecates American criticism of the Bolsheviki. He believes they have been misrepresented. End quote. Thompson also authored a pamphlet praising the Soviets that was published in the United States. Three of the Wall Streeters in the Petrograd Red Cross mission, Thompson, Alan Wardwell, and Robert Barr, went on to become founding members of the CFR. Three others, Henry Davison, Thomas Thatcher, and Harold Swift, joined the council in subsequent years. In May 1918, Thompson helped found the American League to aid and cooperate with Russia. Three of the group's executives, Oscar Strauss, Charles Coffin, and Maurice Oden, became CFR founding members. The League's president, Frank Goodnow, entered the council in 1925. In June 1918, the State Department received a memorandum from a committee of the War Trade Board advocating, quote, closer and more friendly commercial relations between the United States and Russia, end quote. The committee consisted of three individuals, Thomas Chadbourne, CFR founder, John Foster Dulles, CFR founder, 
and Clarence Woolley, CFR 1925. State Department files reveal that later in 1918, Chadbourne was instrumental in securing $10,000 for George Lomonosov, a Soviet emissary sent to the United States. Among the other Bolshevik abettors in the CFR's original membership were the following. Morgan partner Thomas Lamont, who helped persuade the British government to accept the new Soviet regime, and whose family became a financial backer of extreme left-wing organizations including the Communist Party. Paul Kravath, the aforementioned vice president of the CFR, who urged recognition of the Bolsheviks in foreign affairs, and whose law firm helped make that goal an eventual reality. And Ivy Lee, the public relations man who spruced up the Soviets' image in the USA. In 1923, the council signed on Avril Harriman. A pioneer in trading with the Russian communists, Harriman formed a joint shipping firm with them, obtained a multi-million dollar concession from them to operate the manganese mines in the Caucasus Mountains, and nearly swung a deal to float $42 million in Bolshevik bonds. Until the U.S. government stepped in. Years later, he would become our ambassador to the Soviet Union and a confidant of its rulers. We should not overlook Archibald Carey Coolidge, editor of Foreign Affairs. In the periodical's first issue, he wrote an article about Russia under the simple pseudonym K, which chided the United States for being, quote, coldly aloof, haughtily refusing to recognize the Soviet government or to have any dealings with it except in dispensing charity, end quote. Coolidge acknowledged the brutality of the Bolsheviks, but reasoned, quote, shall we refuse to sell sorely needed farm instruments to the Russian peasants because we dislike the Moscow Soviet? To recognize the government of a country does not imply that we admire it, end quote. Despite claims to the contrary, it is evident that Wall Street and the CFR enjoyed an early love affair with the Bolsheviks. Perhaps the best testimony came from one of Moscow's own representatives, Ludwig Martins of the Soviet Bureau in New York. In 1919, he was brought before a Senate committee investigating Soviet influence in America. The New York Times reported, quote, According to Martins, instead of carrying on propaganda among the radicals and the proletariat, he has addressed most of his efforts to winning to the side of Russia the big business and manufacturing interests of this country. Martins asserted that most of the big business houses of the country were aiding him in his effort to get the government to recognize the Soviet government. End quote. The Strange Partnership More than once, this book has noted the alignment of Wall Street's highest circles with communism. This, of course, is hardly the orthodox outlook. We have always been told that Marxists and capitalists are sworn enemies, but this is frequently contradicted by their record. Probably no name symbolizes capitalism more than Rockefeller, yet that family has for decades supplied trade and credit to communist nations. After the Bolsheviks took power, the Rockefeller Standard Oil of New Jersey bought up Russian oil fields while Standard Oil of New York built the Soviets a refinery and made an arrangement to market their oil in Europe. During the 1920s, the Rockefellers' Chase Bank helped found the American-Russian Chamber of Commerce and was involved in financing Soviet raw material exports and selling Soviet bonds in the U.S. The Rockefeller perspective in more recent years hasn't changed. The New York Times of January 16, 1967 carried the headline, Eaton Joins Rockefellers to Spur Trade with Reds. The ensuing story noted that the Rockefellers were teaming up with tycoon Cyrus Eaton Jr., who was financing for the Soviet bloc the construction of a $50 million aluminum plant and rubber plants valued at over $200 million. During the 1970s, American technology helped the Soviets construct the $5 billion Kama River Truck Factory. It is the world's largest producer of heavy trucks and has been successfully converted by the Kremlin to military purposes, such as the manufacture of vehicles for the war on Afghanistan. The Soviets built the factory mostly on loans from the U.S. 
The chief private source of this credit was the Chase Manhattan Bank, chaired by David Rockefeller. The Chase, which maintains a branch office at 1 Karl Marx Square in Moscow, has gained notoriety for financing projects behind the Iron Curtain. We note parenthetically that while the J.P. Morgan interest dominated the CFR in its early days, the center of influence gradually shifted to the Rockefellers. Indeed, David Rockefeller was chairman of the CFR from 1970 to 1985. Now the question that must arise is why this unexpected and unpublicized harmony exists between the super-rich and the Reds. If the communists were obedient to their creed, they would be spitting at the capitalist bosses, not climbing in bed with them. The explanation materializes when we define or perhaps redefine certain concepts. Communism, in practice, is a system where government has total power. Not only political power, but power over the economy, education, communications, etc. Socialism is essentially a lesser form, a little brother of communism. The government controls the means of production and distribution, but is not as pervasive in its authority. The American free enterprise system as originally set up was much the opposite of communism. The Constitution forced the government to remain laissez-faire. It could exert virtually no influence on business, education, religion, and most other features of national life. These were left in the private hands of the people. It is natural enough to suppose that rich capitalists who made their fortunes through the free market would be proponents of that system. This, however, has not been the case historically. Free enterprise means competition. It means in its purest form that everyone has an equal opportunity to make it in the marketplace. But John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, and other kingpins of the money trust were powerful monopolists. A monopolist seeks to eliminate competition. In fact, Rockefeller once said, quote, Competition is a sin. End quote. These men were not free enterprise advocates. Their coziness with Marxism, it is well to remember that Marx's co-author Friedrich Engels was a wealthy businessman, becomes more comprehensible when we realize that communism and socialism are themselves forms of monopoly. The only difference is that in this case, the monopoly is operated by the government. But what if an international banker through loans to the state, manipulation of a central bank, campaign contributions, or bribes is able to achieve dominion over a government? In that case, he would find socialism welcome, for it would serve him as an instrument to control society. Frederick C. Howe laid out the strategy of utilizing government in his book Confessions of a Monopolist, 1906. Quote, this is the story of something for nothing, of making the other fellow pay. This making the other fellow pay of getting something for nothing explains the lust for franchises, mining rights, tariff privileges, railroad control, tax evasions. All these things mean monopoly, and all monopoly is bottomed on legislation. End quote. Howe further explained, quote, These are the rules of big business. They have superseded the teachings of our parents and are reducible to a single maxim. Get a monopoly. Let society work for you. And remember that the best of all business is politics, for a legislative grant, franchise, subsidy, or tax exemption is worth more than a Kimberley or Comstock load, since it does not require any labor, either mental or physical, for its exploitation. End quote. Robert Barons of the 19th century, such as Jay Gould and Cornelius Vanderbilt, grew rich partly by bribing government officials. Regulation, traditional scourge of the businessman, has another face. It can be used to acquire exclusive monopolies and feed on tax revenues. The early railroad magnates were able to get public funds to foot the bill for constructing their lines. The very first U.S. regulatory agency, the Interstate Commerce Commission, was created at the petition of railroad owners, not railroad users. 
When the Federal Reserve was under consideration in 1912, J.P. Morgan partner Henry Davison, later a CFR member, told Congress, quote, I would rather have regulation and control than free competition, end quote. Anthony Sutton, in his Wall Street and FDR, reviews his succession of corporate notables who have espoused socialism in speeches and books. A modern illustration of how big business uses government for its own ends is the Export-Import Bank. This federal bank was established to quote-unquote promote trade. Here is how it can work. An American manufacturer wants to sell his products to, say, Poland. But the Poles have no cash to put up. So the Export-Import Bank theoretically loans Poland money to buy the goods. We say theoretically because in practice, this step is cut out as unnecessary. The money goes straight to the manufacturer. The Poles then pay off the Export-Import Bank in installments but at a low rate, subsidized by American taxpayers. And what if the polls default? We taxpayers pick up the whole tab. The manufacturer makes the transaction at no risk to himself through the medium of a federal agency. There is nothing on earth more powerful than government, a fact long ago recognized by international bankers. Regulation, socialism, and communism are simply different gradations of monopoly. Who cares if the government is running things if you run the government? In communist countries, it bears observing, the people do not run the government. There are either no elections or sham elections. Just as many captains of Wall Street ride falsely under the banner of free enterprise, so do the communists have their own public relations myths. They are supposedly champions of the people, the masses. Yet from Petrograd to Phnom Penh, genocide has been the stamp of communist takeover. What kind of government is it that erects walls and barbed wire to keep the people in? Such a country is not a worker's paradise, but a prison. In the final analysis, there is little difference between the goals of Marxism and capitalist monopolism. And both, along with the Council on Foreign Relations, share a common final objective. One world government. The CFR and Germany to help pay off the harsh reparations forced upon it by the Versailles Treaty, Germany printed outrageous quantities of paper money, leading to one of the most disastrous inflations in history. It was so severe that a hundred million marks could not buy a box of matches. The potential for profit in this situation beckoned to the instincts of the international bankers, and they had done much to precipitate it through their influence at the Paris Peace Conference. Foreign affairs articles in the early 1920s called for reform in the German reparations program. In 1923, the Council began a study on the subject. The Dawes Plan, 1924, and the Abortive Young Plan, 1930, were the international measures adopted to solve Germany's payment troubles. J.P. Morgan had a heavy hand in both. The plans were named after two American bankers who headed the committees that originated them. How much the CFR contributed to the plans conceptually is arguable, but it should be noted that both Charles Dawes and Owen Young were Council members, Dawes joining in 1927, and Young as a founder. Both programs were hailed in foreign affairs with no dissenting views proffered. Not surprisingly, the Dawes Plan called for massive loans to Germany. Dr. Carol Quigley said of the undertaking, quote, It is worthy of note that this system was set up by the international bankers and that the subsequent lending of other people's money to Germany was very profitable to these bankers, end quote. David Lloyd George, who had been British Prime Minister from 1916 to 1922, stated, quote, the international bankers dictated the Dawes reparation settlement. They swept statesmen, politicians, and journalists to one side and issued their orders with the imperiousness of absolute monarchs who knew that there was no appeal from their ruthless decrees. End quote. 
Profit and arrogance, however, were overshadowed by a far more sinister aspect to the new reparations program. Three German cartels in particular were beneficiaries of credit under the Dawes Plan. This trio became the industrial backbone of the Nazi war machine and the financial backbone of Adolf Hitler's rise to power in Germany. Of the three cartels, the chemical enterprise IG Farben stands out. The Farben Company received significant assistance under the Dawes Plan, including a flotation of $30 million from the Rockefeller's National City Bank. IG Farben grew to be the largest chemical concern in the world. After World War II, an investigation by the U.S. War Department noted, quote, Without IG's immense productive facilities, its intense research and vast international affiliations, Germany's prosecution of the war would have been unthinkable and impossible. End quote. This is entirely supported by the statistics. In 1943, for example, Farben produced 100% of Germany's synthetic rubber, 100% of its lubricating oil, and 84% of its explosives. It even manufactured the deadly Zyklon B gas used to exterminate human beings in Hitler's concentration camps. IG Farben also supplied 45% of the election funds used to bring the Nazis to power in 1933. What is particularly odious is that certain American companies did robust business with IG Farben, which hired Ivy Lee, CFR, to handle its public relations in the U.S. In 1939, on the eve of the Blitzkrieg, the Rockefeller Standard Oil of New Jersey sold $20 million in aviation fuel to the firm. IG Farben even had an American subsidiary called American IG. Among the directors of the latter were the ubiquitous Paul Warburg, CFR founder, Herman A. Metz, CFR founder and Charles E. Mitchell, who joined the CFR in 1923 and was a director of both the New York Federal Reserve Bank and National City Bank. There were also several Germans on the board of American IG. After the war, three of them were found guilty of war crimes at the Nuremberg Trials, but none of the Americans were ever prosecuted. This story of American ties to German fascism has been avoided like the plague by the major U.S. media. However, several books on the subject have appeared in recent years. Of these, Sutton's Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler probably remains the definitive study. Chapter 4. The CFR and FDR The Council on Foreign Relations exerted only limited influence on Washington during the 1920s. The American people had wearied of Wilsonian policy with its attendant war, debt, taxation, and inflation. In 1920, Republican Warren Harding was elected president with over 60% of the popular vote. A resolute opponent of both Bolshevism and the League of Nations, Harding was anathema to the CFR and the international bankers, a factor that should not be overlooked when considering the evil reputation some historians have assigned him. Under Harding and his successor, Calvin Coolidge, the United States enjoyed unprecedented prosperity in an atmosphere of world peace. It was a happy era of spirited accomplishments, remembered for the introduction of radio and talkies, Lindbergh's transatlantic flight, and Babe Ruth's home runs. Some $8 billion were even sliced off the federal deficit accrued under Wilson. This atmosphere was apparently not to the liking of the Money Trust. They sought to oust the new Republican dynasty from the White House and install someone more cooperative, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Ever since his first presidential campaign, FDR had been touted as a quote-unquote man of the little people, a knight on a white horse who stood up to Wall Street. This image is just that, an image. Roosevelt himself was a prototypic Wall Streeter. His family had been involved in New York banking since the 18th century. His uncle, Frederick Delano, was on the original Federal Reserve Board. FDR had a customary establishment education, attending Groton and Harvard. 
During the 1920s, he pursued a career on Wall Street, working as a bond writer and corporate promoter, and organizing speculation enterprises. He was on the board of directors of 11 different corporations. In 1928, millionaire Jacob Raskob, vice president of both DuPont and General Motors, became chairman of the Democratic National Committee. He approached Roosevelt, whose family name carried distinction and political clout, about running for governor of New York, a traditional stepping stone for presidential candidates. Roosevelt declined, explaining that he owed $250,000 in connection with his polio resort at Warm Springs, Georgia. However, after Raskob and other men of wealth wrote out checks liquidating the debt, he agreed to run and was elected New York's governor that year. We mentioned earlier the maxim that what appears in foreign affairs today becomes foreign policy tomorrow. It would be an exaggeration to say that we can predict who the next president will be by noting which politicians are writing in foreign affairs. But history suggests that at strategic times, the candidates favored by the establishment, or who at least seek its favor, contribute to the journal. In the July 1928 foreign affairs, some two months before Raskob approached him, FDR had published a piece entitled Our Foreign Policy, A Democratic View. In it, he recalled how Woodrow Wilson, quote, brought home to the hearts of mankind the great hope that through an association of nations, the world could in the days to come avoid armed conflict and substitute reason and collective action for the age-old appeal of the sword, end quote. He gave clear signals to the establishment that he was ready to play ball in the game of world government. Quote, the United States has taken two negative steps. It has declined to have anything to do with either the League of Nations or the World Court. Even without full membership, we Americans can be generous and sporting enough to give the League a far greater share of sympathetic approval and definite official help than we have hitherto accorded. The time has come when we must accept not only certain facts, but many new principles of a higher law, a newer and better standard in international relations. End quote. FDR's bonds to the council were affirmed by his son-in-law, Curtis Dahl. Dahl, a regular visitor at the Roosevelt home, eventually wrote a book entitled FDR, My Exploited Father-in-Law. He wrote therein, quote, For a long time I felt that FDR had developed many thoughts and ideas that were his own to benefit this country, the USA. But he didn't. Most of his thoughts, his political ammunition as it were, were carefully manufactured for him in advance by the CFR One World Money Group. Brilliantly, with great gusto like a fine piece of artillery, he exploded that prepared ammunition in the middle of an unsuspecting target, the American people, and thus paid off and retained his internationalist political support. End quote. In 1929, the Council on Foreign Relations purchased new quarters for itself at 45 East 65th Street in New York City. By a remarkable coincidence, this address was next door to the house of Franklin D. Roosevelt, who had just become governor of the state. Thus, throughout the years preparatory to his White House tenure, FDR lived literally under the CFR shadow. The 1929 Bust, FDR's Boom Tragedy is the mother of new directions. The Panic of 1907 spawned the Federal Reserve, the sinking of the Lusitania led us toward World War I, and the war itself nearly brought us into the League of Nations. What happened in late October of 1929 would also rechart our destiny. Establishment historians present the 29 stock market crash as they do most events. An accident, evolved from erroneous policies, not from deliberate planning. We have all heard how foolish speculation bid stock prices high, but that the bubble finally burst, plunging brokers out of windows in America into the Depression. That version is correct enough, but has several missing parts. The free enterprise system has been the traditional scapegoat for the crash. 
In reality, however, the Federal Reserve prompted the speculation by expanding the money supply a whooping 62% between 1923 and 1929. When the central bank became law in 1913, Congressman Charles Lindbergh had warned, quote, From now on, depressions will be scientifically created. End quote. Like two con men working a mark, the Fed made credit easy while establishment newspapers hyped the riches that could be made in the stock market. Lewis McFadden, chairman of the House Banking Committee, declared of the Depression, quote, It was not accidental. It was a carefully contrived occurrence. The international bankers sought to bring about a condition of despair here so that they might emerge as rulers of us all. End quote. Curtis Stahl, himself a syndicate manager for Lehman Brothers, was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange on the day of the crash. He said of the calamity, quote, Actually, it was the calculated shearing of the public by the world money powers triggered by the planned sudden shortage of call money in the New York money market. End quote. It must be understood that an expedient existed on the New York exchange called a quote-unquote 24-hour broker call loan. In those days, one could purchase stock on extensive credit. He could lay down, say, $100 and borrow $900 from a bank through his broker to purchase $1,000 in securities. If the stock increased just 10% in value, he could sell it, repay the loan, and walk away with his original investment doubled. The only problem was that such a loan could be called at any time, and if it was the investor had to pay it off within 24 hours. For most, the only way to do so was to sell the stock. One can imagine the impact on the market if a great multitude of these loans were called simultaneously. In the United States' unresolved monetary and political problems, William Bryan explains what occurred during the 29 panic. Quote, When everything was ready, the New York financiers started calling 24-hour broker call loans. This meant that the stockbrokers and the customers had to dump their stock on the market in order to pay the loans. This naturally collapsed the stock market and brought a banking collapse all over the country because the banks not owned by the oligarchy were heavily involved in broker call claims at this time. And bank runs soon exhausted their coin and currency, and they had to close. The Federal Reserve System would not come to their aid, although they were instructed under the law to maintain an elastic currency. End quote. Plummeting stock prices ruined small investors, but not the top insiders on Wall Street. Paul Warburg had issued a tip in March of 1929 that the crash was coming. Before it did, John D. Rockefeller, Bernard Baruch, Joseph B. Kennedy, and other money barons got out of the market. According to John Kenneth Galbraith in The Great Crash, 1929, Winston Churchill appeared in the investors' gallery of the New York Stock Exchange during the frenzy of the panic. It has been said that Bernard Baruch brought him there, perhaps to show him the power of the international bankers. Early withdrawal from the market not only preserved the fortunes of these men, it also enabled them to return later and buy up whole companies for a song. Shares that once sold for a dollar now cost a nickel. Joseph P. Kennedy's worth reportedly grew from $4 million in 1929 to $100 million in 1935. Not everyone was selling apples during the Depression. FDR now rode an open highway to the presidency, fueled by such men as Bernard Baruch. The latter's assistant, Hugh Johnson, said of the campaign, quote, Every time a crisis came, BM, Baruch, either gave the necessary money or went out and got it, end quote. In the meantime, the Republicans were issued a death sentence. Newspapers blamed President Hoover for the crash and depression. The Federal Reserve, instead of moving to stimulate growth and recovery, contracted the money supply by more than one-third between 1929 and 1933, thus sustaining the Depression and giving no relief to the thousands of banks dying from runs. President Hoover had a plan to bail out the banks, but he needed backing from the Democratic Congress. 
After losing the 1932 election, the lame-duck president appealed to Roosevelt. Would he issue a statement encouraging congressional support and thus help end the crisis? FDR gave no reply, later claiming that he had written one, but that due to an oversight, it was not sent. The banks were allowed to go on collapsing right until his inauguration, thus attaching maximum stigma to the Republican Party. Ironically, when the new president announced emergency banking measures, he used the very plan drawn up by Hoover's Treasury Secretary. Roosevelt in the White House FDR did much to indulge his mentors. In his first year in office, he granted recognition to the Soviet Union, fulfilling an objective long promulgated by foreign affairs. In 1934, he took America off the gold standard, setting the stage for unrestrained expansion of the money supply, leading to decades of inflation and decades of credit revenues for his friends and finance. With his Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau Jr., the son of a founding CFR member, he arbitrarily jacked up the price of gold from $20 per ounce to $35, yielding untold profits for the international banking community. Footnote. For a detailed account of the results of this maneuver, see Martin A. Larson, The Federal Reserve and Our Manipulated Dollar, Old Greenwich, Connecticut, Devin Adair, 1975. End footnote. FDR is probably best remembered for the New Deal with its vast tangle of trilettered bureaus and agencies. Of course, since a large portion of the workforce was unemployed, there was not enough tax revenue to pay for these programs. So the government turned to its other source, borrowing. In effect, the international bankers, having created the Depression, now loaned America the cash to recover from it. Naturally, the interest on these loans would be borne on the backs of taxpayers for years to come. But many impoverished Americans were only too ready to accept the money dangled by FDR without any deep contemplation of its origins or consequences. While thousands went hungry, the President's Agricultural Adjustment Administration, AAA, paid farmers to destroy their crops and livestock to quote-unquote raise prices. Even a child could see the madness of these actions, which demonstrated the dangers inherent in granting excessive power to government. What the New Deal really gave America was a thick dose of socialism, or government monopoly. This, of course, was precisely what the international bankers sought. To this day, many Americans do not perceive that when they accept federal aid, they almost invariably surrender a degree of freedom or control. Sunsets may be an exception to the old saw, you can't get something for nothing, but government benefits are not. Top Wall Streeters were pleased with the creation of the Export-Import Bank in 1934, but the New Deal agency they probably liked the most was the National Recovery Administration, NRA, which was designed to regulate the country's businesses. The essence of the plan for the NRA was laid out by Bernard Baruch in a speech on May Day in 1930. As chairman of the War Industries Board during World War I, Baruch had possessed government-granted autocratic power over America's businesses. He now savored the idea of the same arrangement in peacetime. Roosevelt appointed Baruch's protege, Hugh Johnson, to run NRA. Assisting Johnson were Gerard Swope, president of General Electric and a member of the CFR, Walter Teagle, chairman of the board of Standard Oil of New Jersey and a director of IG Farben's American subsidiary, and Louis Kirstein, vice president of Filene's of Boston. Thus the bureau was administered by the captains of industry, the very people who myopic historians tell us regarded the New Deal as a dreaded scourge. It is notable that when FDR operated on Wall Street, his office had been the same address as the offices of Baruch and Swope, 120 Broadway. The NRA collaborated with businesses to set prices, wages, and working conditions. The trick was that the largest companies had the most say. 
For example, in establishing NRA guidelines for the iron and steel industry, U.S. Steel was allotted 511 votes, while Allegheny Steel, a small firm, had only 17. Continental Steel had but 16. This meant that giant corporations could dictate the operating standards in their respective fields, strangling small competitors out of existence. In the iron and steel industry alone, there were more than 60 complaints of such oppression in early 1934. This book is not intended to vindicate Herbert Hoover, who sometimes compromised with the international bankers and even joined the CFR in 1937. But it should be observed that Wall Street had attempted to force NRA on him while he was president. He refused and paid for it. In his memoirs, Hoover wrote, quote, Among the early Roosevelt fascist measures was the National Industry Recovery Act, NRA. The origins of this scheme are worth repeating. These ideas were first suggested by Gerard Swope. Following this, they were adopted by the United States Chamber of Commerce. During the campaign of 1932, Henry I. Harriman, president of that body, urged that I agree to support these proposals, informing me that Mr. Roosevelt had agreed to do so. I tried to show him that this stuff was pure fascism, that it was merely a remaking of Mussolini's corporate state, and refused to agree to any of it. He informed me that in view of my attitude, the business world would support Roosevelt with money and influence. That, for the most part, proved true. End quote. The police state power of NRA was perhaps best illustrated by the case of Jack Magid, a New Jersey tailor. Magid pressed his suit for 35 cents, whereas the NRA code for Taylor stipulated 40 cents. For this crime, Magid was fined and thrown in jail. Luckily for America, the Supreme Court ruled the NRA and the AAA unconstitutional. Roosevelt retaliated by sending a bill to Congress that would enable him to appoint as many as six additional Supreme Court justices. This became known as the famous quote-unquote court-packing scheme. But even the president's friends on Capitol Hill could not stomach such an assault on the checks and balances of power, and the measure failed. The Council on Foreign Relations played a significant role in the Roosevelt administration, although its influence did not peak until World War II. After being nominated at the 1932 Democratic Convention, FDR traveled to Colonel House's home to pay his respects. House had an article published in the January 1933 Foreign Affairs laying out what some of the new Washington regime's aims should be. Among the officials Roosevelt drew from the ranks of the CFR were Secretary of State Edward Stettinus, former board chairman of U.S. Steel and the son of a Morgan partner, Assistant Secretary of State Sumner Wells, and War Secretary Henry Stimson. Wall Street banker Norman H. Davis, who served as the council's president from 1936 to 1944, was FDR's close friend and went on missions abroad for him. James P. Warburg, CFR, the son of Paul Warburg, became a member of the president's brain trust. It was James Warburg who would later tell a Senate committee, quote, We shall have world government, whether you like it or not, by conquest or consent, end quote. Other CFR men held various positions in the Roosevelt government. The establishment also sought control of the Republican Party, which the crash had broken. The Republican presidential nominee in 1940 was Wendell Wilkie. Certainly no one would call Wilkie a party traditionalist. Until the year he ran, he had been a registered Democrat. A rabid internationalist, he wrote a book entitled One World and later became a CFR member. Seven weeks before the nominating convention, a poll showed that only 3% of Republicans favored Wilkie. But thanks to some mass media magic, he emerged as the candidate. Congressman Usher Burdick had this to say about it before the House. Quote, we Republicans in the West want to know if Wall Street, the utilities, and the international bankers control our party and can select our candidate. 
I believe that I am serving the best interests of the Republican Party by protesting in advance and exposing the machinations and attempts of J.P. Morgan and the New York utility bankers and forcing Wendell Wilkie on the Republican Party. There is nothing to the Wilkie boom for president except the artificial public opinion being created by newspapers, magazines, and the radio. The reason back of all this is money. Money is being spent by someone, and lots of it. End quote. Wendell Wilkie lost the election, but that was of no concern to the insiders of Wall Street. They were supporting both candidates. Wilkie soon became an international emissary for FDR. Chapter 5 A Global War with Global Ends In September 1939, Hitler's troops invaded Poland. Britain and France declared war on Germany. World War II had begun. Less than two weeks later, Hamilton Fish Armstrong, editor of Foreign Affairs, and Walter Mallory, the CFR's executive director, met in Washington with Assistant Secretary of State George Messersmith. They proposed that the Council help the State Department formulate its wartime policy and post-war planning. The CFR would conduct study groups in coordination with State, making recommendations to the Department and President. Messersmith, a Council member himself and his superiors, agreed. The CFR succeeded, temporarily at least, in making itself an adjunct of the United States government. This undertaking became known as the War and Peace Studies Project. It worked in secret and was underwritten by the Rockefeller Foundation. It held 362 meetings and prepared 682 papers for FDR and the State Department. Consultation, however, soon became encroachment. Harley Nodder, assistant chief of the Division of Special Research in the State Department, wrote a letter of resignation to a superior, a CFR member, explaining that his dissatisfaction stemmed from, quote, relations with the Council on Foreign Relations. I have consistently opposed every move tending to give it increased control of research of this division. And though you have consistently stated that such a policy was far from your objectives, the actual facts already visibly show that the departmental control is fast losing ground. End quote. While the council was digging a niche in our government, FDR, like Woodrow Wilson, was basing his re-election campaign on pledges to stay out of war. In his speech on October 30, 1940, he declared, quote, I have said this before, but I shall say it again and again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. End quote. But Roosevelt was planning just the opposite. It is noteworthy that when the Lusitania went down, Winston Churchill was head of the British Admiralty and FDR, his distant cousin, Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Navy. This conjured up a haunting sense of deja vu 25 years later as the two men, now heads of state, conferred. In 1940, at the American Embassy in London, a code clerk named Tyler Kent discovered secret dispatches between Churchill and FDR, revealing the latter's intention to bring the U.S. into the war. Kent tried to smuggle some of the documents out of the embassy, hoping to alert the American people, but he was caught and confined to a British prison for the duration of the war. The president's closest advisor was Harry Hopkins, who lived in the White House and enjoyed a relationship with him that some have likened to the House-Wilson kinship. According to Winston Churchill and the Grand Alliance, Hopkins visited him in January 1941 and said, quote, The president is determined that we shall win the war together. Make no mistake about it. He has sent me here to tell you that at all costs and by all means he will carry you through, no matter what happens to him. End quote. William Stevenson noted in A Man Called Intrepid that American-British military staff talks began the same month under utmost secrecy, which he clarified, quote, meant preventing disclosures to the American public. End quote. Even Robert Sherwood, the president's friendly biographer, once said, quote, 
If the isolationists had known the full extent of the secret alliance between the United States and Britain, their demands for the president's impeachment would have rumbled like thunder through the land. End quote. CFR members were interested in exploiting the Second World War, as they had the first, as a justification for world government. This, of course, later became reality in the crude form in the United Nations, which was predominantly their creation. However, to involve America in such a body would first require involving it in the war itself. Foreign Affairs Preached Rearmament In 1940, a group of council members wrote an appeal that ran in newspapers across the nation asserting that, quote, the United States should immediately declare that a state of war exists between this country and Germany, end quote. The globalists hoped to use the Axis threat to force the U.S. and England into a permanent Atlantic alliance, an intermediate step toward world government. Ads in foreign affairs pushed Clarence Streit's book Union Now, while the journal's contributors hailed the same objective. In the last issue before Pearl Harbor, the lead article typically maintained, quote, Hope for the world's future, the only hope, lies in the continued collaboration of the Oceanic Commonwealth of Free Nations. To the overwhelming majority of Englishmen, and to the very many thousands of Americans, this recognition of both nations of their common needs and common responsibilities is the great good that is coming out of the war. Just as for their fathers, and the thought is a warning, the League of Nations was the offset that could be made against the misery of the last war. End quote. However, a 1940 Gallup poll found 83% of Americans against participation in the European conflict. The U.S. wasn't about to go to war unless there was an incident even more insufferable than the Lusitania affair. While there is no denying the belligerence and atrocities of the Axis powers, it is certainly true that FDR dealt them incitements to attack. Despite our neutrality and without congressional approval, he shipped 50 destroyers to Great Britain. This idea originated with the Century Group, an ad hoc organization formed by CFR members. Roosevelt also sent hundreds of millions of ammunition rounds to Britain ordered our ships to sail directly into the war zone, and closed all German consulates. The U.S. occupied Iceland and depth-charged U-boats. But the Germans avoided retaliation, knowing that America's entry into the war would turn the tide against them, as it had in 1917. Provocation was also given Japan. Henry Stimson, war secretary and a patriarch of the CFR, wrote in his diary after meeting with the president, quote, we face the delicate question of the diplomatic fencing to be done is to be sure Japan is put into the wrong and makes the first bad move, overt move, end quote. After a subsequent meeting, he recorded, quote, The question was how we should maneuver them, the Japanese, into the position of firing the first shot, end quote. The Council's War and Peace Studies project sent a memorandum to Roosevelt recommending a trade embargo against Japan, which he eventually enacted. In addition, Japan's assets in America were frozen, and the Panama Canal closed to its shipping. On November 26, 1941, just 11 days before Pearl Harbor, the U.S. government sent an ultimatum to the Japanese demanding as prerequisites to resume trade that they withdraw all their troops from China and Indochina and, in effect, abrogate their treaty with Germany and Italy. For Tokyo, that proved to be the final slap in the face. Double Infamy at Pearl Harbor over the years, a number of books have documented that Franklin D. Roosevelt had foreknowledge of the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. Of these, the most recent and authoritative is Infamy, Pearl Harbor and its Aftermath, 1982, by Pulitzer Prize winner John Toland. The author of The Shadows of Power summarized at length the details of this matter in the December 8, 1986 issue of The New American. We review them here briefly. American military intelligence had cracked the radio code Tokyo used to communicate with its embassies. 
As a result, Japanese diplomatic messages in 1941 were known to Washington, often on a same-day basis. The decoded intercepts revealed that spies in Hawaii were informing Tokyo of the precise location of the U.S. warships docked in Pearl Harbor. Collectively, the messages suggested an assault would come on or about December 7th. These intercepts were routinely sent to the President and to Army Chief of Staff General George Marshall. In addition, separate warnings about the attack with varying specificity as to its time were transmitted to these two men by or through various officials, including Joseph Grew, our ambassador to Japan, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, Senator Guy Gillette, who was acting on a tip from the Korean underground, Congressman Martin Dees, Brigadier General Elliot Thorpe, U.S. Military Observer in Java, Colonel F.G.L. Weigerman, the Dutch military attaché in Washington, and other sources. Captain Johan Ronneft, the Dutch naval attaché in Washington, recorded that U.S. naval intelligence officers told him on December 6 the Japanese carriers were only 400 miles northwest of Honolulu. Despite all this, no alert was passed on to our commanders in Hawaii, Admiral Husband Kimmel and General Walter C. Short. Kimmel's predecessor, Admiral Richardson, had been removed by FDR after protesting the president's order to base the Pacific Fleet in Pearl Harbor, where it was quite vulnerable to attack. Roosevelt and Marshall stripped the island of most of its air defenses shortly before the raid and allotted it only one-third of the surveillance planes needed to reliably detect approaching forces. Perhaps to preserve his station in history, Marshall sent a warning to Hawaii that arrived a few hours after the attack, which left over 2,000 Americans dead and 18 naval vessels sunk or heavily damaged. FDR appointed a commission to investigate what had happened. Heading it was Supreme Court Justice Owen Roberts, an internationalist friendly with Roosevelt. Two of the other four members were in the CFR. The Roberts Commission absolved Washington of blame, declaring that Pearl Harbor had been caught off guard due to quote-unquote dereliction of duty by Commanders Kimmel and Short. The two officers long sought courts martial so that they might have a fair hearing. This was finally mandated by Congress in 1944. At the courts martial, attorneys for the defendants dug up some of Washington's secrets. The Roberts verdict was overturned. Kimmel was exonerated. Short received a small reprimand and the onus of blame was fixed squarely on Washington. But the Roosevelt administration suppressed these results, saying public revelation would endanger national security in wartime. It then conducted new inquiries, in which several witnesses were persuaded to change their testimony. Incriminating memoranda in the files of the Navy and War Department were destroyed. The court-martial findings were buried in a 40-volume government report on Pearl Harbor, and few Americans ever learned the truth. We noted introductively that the CFR had been accused of fondness for communism and globalism. In light of this, it may be instructive to observe that these two systems were prime beneficiaries of World War II. Gains for Communism When World War I ended, millions of French, German, British, and American soldiers lay dead. What was it all for? What was truly won for their great sacrifice? Although the war had supposedly been fought to quote-unquote make the world safe for democracy, it did not achieve that. But one group did profit significantly, the communists. They used the chaos of the war to inflame Russia with revolution and captured the largest country on earth. World War II had a similar denouement. Millions of French, German, British, and American soldiers again lay dead. And for what? Yes, the threat of fascism had been valorously eliminated, but this was gained in the negative sense. Only the communists acquired something from World War II, Eastern Europe, and a foothold in Asia. The war had a commonly overlooked irony. 
it was begun to save Poland from conquest by Germany. Yet when it was over, Poland had been conquered anyway, by the Soviets. This brought no tears from CFR men like John Scott, who wrote in 1945, quote, When Russia disappoints us, as in Poland, we must not indulge our tendency to moralize and say that we cannot deal with the Bolsheviks, end quote. During World War II, the United States and USSR were allies. Ostensibly, this was an expedient forced by the threat of Hitler. But as we have already seen, the growth of German fascism and armed might were made possible by the Dawes Plan, a brainchild of the international bankers that had the CFR's blessing. Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin was a strange choice for an ally. Like Hitler, he had slaughtered millions of his own people, including some six million during the Ukrainian genocide 1932-1933 alone. And like Hitler, Stalin was an international aggressor. Few recall that the 1939 invasion of Poland was a joint venture by the Germans and Soviets, who had signed a pact that year. In 1939-1940, Stalin also invaded Finland, occupied the Baltic states of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, and annexed part of Romania. Nevertheless, FDR called him Uncle Joe, and the American press built him up as an anti-fascist hero after Germany attacked Russia in 1941. And more than adulation was offered in support. During the war, America bestowed over $11 billion in Lend-Lease aid to the USSR. Overseeing these shipments was FDR's top advisor, Harry Hopkins, a zealous admirer of the Bolsheviks. Not everything Hopkins sent was for the record. After the war, two congressional hearings examined evidence that he had also given Moscow nuclear materials and purloined blueprints for the atomic bomb. Hopkins didn't face charges. He was dead. But the facts of the case were chronicled and preserved by George Racy Jordan, a Lend-Lease expediter, in his book From Major Jordan's Diaries. Under Lend-Lease, the Soviets received, among other things, 14,000 aircraft, almost half a million tanks, trucks, and other vehicles, and over 400 combat ships. Without this massive infusion of materiel, it is doubtful that they could have turned back the German military. America thus saved from extinction what is today regarded as its greatest threat, Soviet communism. The U.S. government also cooperated in Stalin's territorial aggrandizement. At the Big Three conferences attended by Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt, FDR made concession after concession to the Red Ruler. At Tehran, it was agreed that armies of the Western Allies would strike at Germany through France, not the Balkans, which preserved Eastern Europe for Soviet engulfment. It was agreed that Stalin would control Eastern Poland, liberate Prague, and maintain possession of the Baltic states and it was agreed that all would support Tito and Yugoslavia rather than anti-communist Draja Mihailovic. At the Yalta conference, an ailing President Roosevelt brought along his advisor, Alger Hiss, the Soviet spy who was later discovered and convicted. Hiss, a member of the CFR, claimed that, quote, it was an accurate, not a modest statement to say that I helped formulate the Yalta agreement to some extent, end quote. At Yalta, it was conceded that the Soviets would have three votes in the General Assembly of the United Nations, which has been the official reality since the UN started operating. All other countries have only one vote. In the Pacific Theater, the Soviets were given control of the Kurile Islands, the southern half of Sakhalin Island, and the Manchurian ports of Dairen and Port Arthur. And it was agreed that all Russians, quote-unquote, displaced by the war, that is, who had fled from Stalin's tyranny westward into Europe, would be repatriated by the Allies. This plan was in fact carried out. After the war, at least two million Russian nationals were rounded up by reluctant American and British army units and forced into boxcars that returned them to the Soviet Union, where they faced brutal reprisals. Many committed suicide rather than go. 
This outrage was suppressed from the American public's knowledge and has become better known only recently thanks to such books as Julius Epstein's Operation Keelhaul. It is little wonder that William C. Bullitt, former U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union, said of the Alta Agreement, quote, No more unnecessary, disgraceful, and potentially disgraceful document has ever been signed by a president of the United States. End quote. Gains for Globalism Most Americans believe the U.N. was formed after World War II as a result of international revulsion at the horrors of the war. Actually, it originated in CFR intellects, and the term quote-unquote United Nations was in use as early as 1942. In January 1943, Secretary of State Cordell Hull formed a steering committee composed of himself, Leo Pazvolsky, Isaiah Bowman, Sumner Wells, Norman Davis, and Myron Taylor. All of these men, with the exception of Hull, were in the CFR. Later known as the Informal Agenda Group, they drafted the original proposal for the United Nations. It was Bowman, a founder of the CFR and member of Colonel House's Old Inquiry, who first put forward the concept. They called in three attorneys, all CFR men, who ruled that it was constitutional. They then discussed it with FDR on June 15, 1944. The president approved the plan and announced it to the public that same day. The UN founding conference took place in San Francisco in 1945. More than 40 of the American delegates attending were CFR members. Preeminent among them was Soviet agent Alger Hiss, who was Secretary General of the conference and helped draft the UN Charter. The Senate had rejected the League of Nations largely because the legislators had been able to study the issue before it came to a vote. This time, however, no chances were taken. Alger Hiss flew directly from San Francisco to Washington with the Charter locked in a small safe. After glib assurances from delegates to the conference, the Senate ratified the document without significant pause for debate. Senator Pat McCarran later said, quote, Until my dying day, I will regret voting for the UN Charter. End quote. But the United Nations was now law, and America, for the first time, part of a world government. Using an $8.5 million gift from John D. Rockefeller Jr., the UN purchased land on New York's East River for its headquarters. In the meantime, the CFR found a new home of its own, moving into the Harold Pratt House on East 68th Street, where it remains to this day. Curiously, the Soviets established their United Nations mission in a building across the street. Since the United Nations' founding, the CFR and its mouthpiece foreign affairs have consistently lobbied to grant the world body more power and authority. That this has not been meaningfully achieved is not from lack of effort on their part. It is thanks to counter-efforts by distrustful Americans who have valued national self-determination. Toward more centralized banking If the key to controlling a nation is to run its central bank, one can imagine the potential of a global central bank able to dictate the world's credit and money supply. The roots for such a system were planted when the International Monetary Fund, IMF, and World Bank were formed at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. These UN agencies were both CFR creations. The idea for them hatched with the Economic and Finance Group, one of the units of the Council's War and Peace Studies Project. This group proposed the IMF and World Bank in a series of increasingly sophisticated memos to the President and State Department during 1941-42. After Bretton Woods, the two institutions were touted in foreign affairs. A.K. Chesterton, the distinguished British author, declared, quote, the final act of Bretton Woods, which gave birth to the World Bank and International Monetary Fund and many similar assemblies of hand-picked functionaries, were not incubated by hard-pressed governments engaged in waging war, but by a supranational money power that could afford to look ahead to the shaping of a post-war world that would serve its interest. 
The IMF was ostensibly set up to control international exchange rates and stabilize currencies, but is the framework for a central bank of issue. It is noteworthy that at Bretton Woods, Federal Reserve Board Governor Mariner Eccles observed, quote, an international currency is synonymous with international government, end quote. John Maynard Keynes, the leading British figure at the conference, proposed a world currency which he called Bancor, but this plan was rejected as too radical to gain international acceptance. However, this goal has not been abandoned. Dr. Johannes Vietenven, former head of the IMF, said in 1975 that the agency should become, quote, the exclusive issuer of official international reserve assets, end quote. In fall 1984 Foreign Affairs, Richard N. Cooper laid out a modern plan for international currency. He wrote, quote, A new Bretton Woods conference is wholly premature, but it is not premature to begin thinking about how we would like international monetary arrangements to evolve in the remainder of this century. With this in mind, I suggest a radical alternative scheme for the next century, the creation of a common currency for all the industrial democracies, with a common monetary policy and a joint bank of issue to determine that monetary policy. End quote. Emphasis in the original. Given the prophetic tendency of foreign affairs and the increasing uniformity of Europe's currencies, we must regard Cooper's proposal as having more than trivial significance. The IMF's sister, the World Bank, was supposedly established to help post-war reconstruction and development. It is an international lending agency, but what it lends more than anything else is dollars from the U.S. taxpayer. Who is the ultimate beneficiary? The World Bank hierarchy has traditionally been closely linked to the Rockefeller's Chase Manhattan Bank. As Congressman John Rarick once explained, quote, Aid to the poor countries usually ends up as seed money or loans to the wealthy industrialists from the developing countries to further their overseas operations in competition with the people whose country they claim to represent. End quote. The Los Angeles Times elaborated in 1978, quote, Ostensibly to encourage agriculture and rural development, World Bank loans go overwhelmingly to build an infrastructure, from roads to dams, that enriches local and foreign contractors and consultants. End quote. Barron's put it succinctly that same year, quote, There's a saying that the bank takes tax money from poor people in rich nations and gives to rich people in poor nations. End quote. And Barron's noted, quote, To make matters worse, many of the social reforms that the bank is funding involve fostering the spread of socialism and communism. End quote. Perhaps no one summarized the strategy of the international bankers better than Senator Jesse Helms, who stated in 1987, quote, It is no secret that the international bankers profiteer from sovereign state debt. The New York banks have found important profit centers in the lending to countries plunged into debt by socialist regimes. Under socialist regimes, countries go deeper and deeper into debt because socialism as an economic system does not work. International bankers are sophisticated enough to understand this phenomenon, and they are sophisticated enough to profit from it. Because the public debt is sovereign debt, the bankers have calculated that they will always be able to collect. If there is too much risk in the private debt side, it is a simple matter to get socialist governments to nationalize banks, industrialize enterprises, and agricultural holdings. In this way, private debt is converted to sovereign state debt, which the bankers have believed will always be collectible. The New York banks find the profit from the interest of the sovereign debt to be critical to their balance sheets. Up until very recently, this has been an essentially riskless game for the banks because the IMF and World Bank have stood ready to bail the banks out with our taxpayers' money. End quote. Bretton Woods marked neither the first nor the last time that the international bankers would devise a means of using other people's money to obtain profits, both monetary and political, in the name of humanitarianism. Chapter 6 
the Truman Era. Franklin Delano Roosevelt died on April 12, 1945, and was succeeded by Vice President Harry Truman. Truman, a former senator from Missouri, had risen in politics through the backing of the notorious Pendergast machine, which was later extensively prosecuted for vote fraud. The acclaimed new book, The Wise Men by Walter Isaacson and Evan Thomas, centers on 16 statesmen whose careers peaked during the Truman era. They were Dean Acheson, a Truman Secretary of State, Robert Lovett, Undersecretary of State and later Secretary of Defense, Avril Harriman, various positions, John McCloy, High Commissioner to Germany, George Kennan, State Department Advisor and Ambassador to the Soviet Union, and Charles Bolin, State Department Advisor. The book calls these men, quote, architects of the American century who left a legacy that dominates American policy to this day, end quote. As chance would have it, all six were members of the CFR, and their backgrounds for the most part were typically establishment. Harry Truman did not fit their mold by breeding. He did not hail from Harvard, Wall Street, or the CFR. After Roosevelt's death, some of the wise men descended on the White House and began what Isaacson and Thomas call the quote-unquote education of Harry Truman. The Marshall Scam Certainly one of the foremost highlights of the eventful Truman years was the Marshall Plan, a massive package of economic aid the U.S. bestowed on Western Europe. General George Marshall, who was now Secretary of State, proposed it in a Harvard commencement speech in 1947. Conventional history presumes Marshall initiated the concept, which, not surprisingly, had its actual birth at the Council on Foreign Relations. In their study of the CFR, Imperial Brain Trust, Lawrence Shoup and William Minter reported, quote, In 1946-1947, lawyer Charles M. Spofford headed a CFR study group with banker David Rockefeller, secretary on reconstruction of Western Europe. In 1947-1948, that body was retitled the Marshall Plan. The Council's annual report in 1948 explained that even before Secretary of State George C. Marshall had made his aid to Europe proposal in June 1947, the Spofford Group had uncovered the necessity for aid to Europe and, quote, helped explain the needs for the Marshall Plan and indicated some of the problems it would present for American foreign policy. Moreover, a number of members of the 1947-1948 group, through their connections with governmental bodies, were in constant touch with the course of events, end quote. Originally, it was to be called the Truman Plan, but this was scrapped because it was felt that the name Marshall, who was chief of staff during the war, could elicit more bipartisan congressional support. Thus was Marshall selected to introduce the proposal publicly. The Marshall Plan, overseen by the Economic Cooperation Administration, ECA, transferred $13 billion from the U.S. taxpayers to Western Europe. But where did the dollars end up? In 1986, Tyler Cowen observed in Reason Magazine, quote, all of the aid channeled through the ECA was linked to purchases of particular U.S. goods and services. In this regard, the Marshall Plan subsidized some U.S. businesses at the expense of the American taxpayer, end quote. Cowan entitled his article The Great 20th Century Foreign Aid Hoax. Firms that could not get Americans to buy their products now forced them to pay through surrogate European consumers. Some of the goods sent were overstocked, overpriced, or inferior in quality. But the Europeans took what the ECA stipulated— and why not? For them, it was free. The Marshall Plan was originally presented as a humanitarian undertaking, but many U.S. congressmen whose approval was needed to secure the appropriations were turning thumbs down. Some called it a quote-unquote New Deal for Europe. So a different marketing appeal was used. The aid, it was said, would prevent Soviet aggression. 
Isaacson and Thomas quote John McCloy. People sat up and listened when the Soviet threat was mentioned, he later said. It taught him a valuable lesson. One way to assure a viewpoint gets noticed is to cast it in terms of resisting the spread of communism. Acheson, they relate, concluded that the anti-communist rhetoric was necessary to win support for the British package. Harry Truman had set the pace in March 1947 when he enunciated the so-called Truman Doctrine, that America would support democracies around the world against aggression. The wise men claims, however, that Truman did not really mean what he said. It seemed to General Marshall and me that there was a little too much flamboyant anti-communism in that speech, Boland later recalled. Marshall and Boland sent a cable back to Washington asked that it be toned down. The reply came back from Truman, without the rhetoric, Congress would not approve the money. Each of the six CFR, wise men, played unique roles in instituting the Marshall Plan. Harriman became the program's administrator in Europe. Boland was PR man. Lovett testified daily to Congress about the Soviet menace. Acheson, on temporary leave from public service, formed the Citizens Committee for the Marshall Plan. John McCloy became president of the World Bank, floating loans to Europe. George Kennan, wittingly or not, supplied the intellectual rationale when he authored the most famous article ever to appear in Foreign Affairs, called The Sources of Soviet Conduct and Anonymously Bylined X. It was partially reprinted in Life and Reader's Digest. In it, Kennan submitted that the U.S. should contain communism, an idea which became the keystone of American Cold War strategy. Foreign Affairs ran the piece in July 1947, the month following Marshall's address. Kennan summarized his thoughts in a speech at Pratt House, after which editor Hamilton Fish Armstrong asked him for a written essay. Not insignificantly, the same issue carried a lead article by Armstrong suggesting aid to Europe. Given a hard sell in terms of prohibiting Soviet expansionism, Congress now approved the plan. Even Joe McCarthy voted for it. But insiders knew the score. Charles L. Mee, in his book The Marshall Plan, quoted Pierre Mendes France, French executive director of the World Bank, quote, the communists are rendering a great service. Because we have a communist danger, the Americans are making a tremendous effort to help us. We must keep up this indispensable communist scare. End quote. None of this means there was no Soviet threat. Stalin had subjugated half of Europe. What it does help confirm, however, is that when CFR members have professed anti communism, they have often done so for ulterior motives. NATO and other alliances. It was Winston Churchill who first warned of the quote-unquote Iron Curtain in a speech at Fulton, Missouri in 1946. What is not well remembered, however, is the solution he advocated, a quote-unquote fraternal association of the English-speaking peoples. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, formally established in 1949, has always been explained to Americans as an anti-communist alliance. But the CFR's definition is far less narrow. It regards all regional organizations as building blocks of world government. This frame of reference was expressed in foreign affairs as early as 1926 when Edward Benish wrote, quote, Locarno, a European collective security agreement, represents an attempt to arrive at the same end by stages, by treaties and local regional pacts which are permeated with the spirit of the Geneva Protocol. These to be constantly supplemented until at last, within the framework of the League of Nations, they are absorbed by one great world convention guaranteeing world security and peace by the enforcing of the rule of law in interstate life. End quote. In April 1948, when Under Secretary of State Robert Lovett was secretly arranging the NATO alliance, Foreign Affairs noted, quote, A regional organization of nations formed to operate within the framework of the United Nations can only strengthen that organization. End quote. 
Shortly after American entry into NATO was ratified by the U.S. Senate in a pamphlet called The Goal is Government of All the World, Almo Roper of the CFR mused, quote, But the Atlantic Pact, NATO, need not be our last effort toward greater unity. It can be converted into one more sound and important step working toward world peace. It can be one of the most positive moves in the direction of one world. End quote. For NATO, then, as for the Marshall Plan, anti-communism was apparently just a selling point. The original plan called for Western Europe to consolidate her forces into one army, but this was rejected by the nations themselves. An alliance such as NATO was as far as they would go. The pressure for European unity, however, has never ceased. Through such associations as the Common Market, established in 1957, and the European Parliament, which held its first popular elections in 1979, Europe has become an increasingly collective global unit. NATO, of course, is not unique. In 1964, in his Foreign Affairs article, The World Order in the 60s, Robert Ducci explained, quote, Pending the formation of such wider and more responsible political units, encouragement should be given to regional organizations of the type recognized by the UN Charter. They should be strengthened so as to make them able to keep the peace in their respective areas. NATO in the North Atlantic and the Council of Europe in the European regions, OAS in the Americas, OAU in Africa, CETO in Southeast Asia. End quote. For decades, the CFR pushed this ascending approach to world government, with foreign affairs carrying such titles as Toward European Integration, Beginnings in Agriculture, Toward Unity in Africa, Toward a Caribbean Federation, and so on. Within the North Atlantic context, both the Marshall Plan and NATO may be understood as facets of the attempt to use the threat of Soviet communism to push America and Europe into a binding alliance as a halfway house on the road to world order. The Marshall Plan created the economic footing for this alliance, while NATO represented the military component. The political bond, the final and most crucial stage, was supposed to come to life in an Atlantic Commonwealth the globalists whimsically dubbed Atlantica. An organization called the Atlantic Union Committee, dominated by CFR members, was formed to promote this concept. It did so diligently during the 1950s and 60s, and through the lobbying efforts of it and its successor, the Atlantic Council, several resolutions were actually brought before Congress that would have authorized a convention to lay the foundations of an Atlantic Union. These, however, were consistently rejected by the elected representatives of the American people. The Fall of China in 1949, the Communists took over the most populous nation on Earth. An intense controversy erupted over this in the United States. Substantial evidence, now all but forgotten, implicated American diplomacy in the debacle. The story began with the Yalta Conference when it was arranged that the Russians would march into China, presumably to battle the Japanese forces there. Stalin had maintained a non-aggression treaty with Tokyo during the war, but said he would break it, provided that we equip his army for the job. Roosevelt consented. Without consulting the Chinese, it was also promised that the Soviets would receive control of the Manchurian ports of Dairen and Port Arthur, as well as joint operation of Manchuria's railways with the Chinese. This agreement was disgraceful for at least two reasons. First, Japan's defeat was already imminent, nullifying any need to invite Stalin, a known aggressor, into the Pacific theater. Second, Roosevelt had no right to cede the territory of a sovereign nation to a third country. The Russians entered the Pacific War all right, just days before it ended. The atomic bomb had already pounded Hiroshima. The Soviets confiscated Japan's surrendered munitions in Manchuria, collecting the spoils without expending the effort. They then turned these, as well as American lend-lease supplies, over to China's communist rebels, led by Mao Zedong. For the next four years, the land was ablaze as Mao fought to overthrow the nationalist regime of Chiang Kai-shek. 
Chang, a faithful ally of the United States, was trying to establish a constitutional republic. He had been criticized in foreign affairs as far back as 1928, shortly after his struggle with the communists had begun. In late 1945, President Truman dispatched General Marshall to China as a special ambassador to mediate the conflict. Marshall had been an obscure colonel until the reign of FDR, who boosted him past dozens of senior officers to chief of staff. Marshall was never listed on the CFR's roster, but he was chronically in the company of its members and once wrote the introduction to the Council's annual volume, The United States and World Affairs. In China, Marshall demanded that Chiang accept the communists into his government, or forfeit U.S. support. He also negotiated truces that saved the Reds from imminent defeat, and which they exploited to regroup and seize more territory. Finally, Marshall slammed a weapons embargo on the nationalist government, as the communists had been urging him to do. He returned home and was appointed Secretary of State. It became the official line of the CFR-dominated State Department that Chiang Kai-shek was a corrupt reactionary and that Mao Zedong was not a communist but a quote-unquote agrarian reformer. This propaganda was extensively disseminated to the public by the now-defunct Institute of Pacific Relations, IPR. The CFR was the parent organization of the IPR, which had no less than 40 council members in its ranks. The Institute, like the Council, was heavily funded by establishment foundations. An FBI raid on the offices of Amerasia, a magazine produced by IPR's leaders, uncovered 1,800 stolen government documents. Later, the Institute was investigated by the Senate Committee on the Judiciary, which declared in 1952, quote, The Institute of Pacific Relations was a vehicle used by the Communists to orient American Far East policies toward Communist objectives. Members of the small corps of officials and staff members who controlled IPR were either communist or pro-communist. The situation in China became desperate. Thanks to the U.S. embargo, the nationalists were running out of ammunition, while the communists remained Soviet-supplied. In 1948, Congress voted $125 million in military aid to Chiang. But the Truman administration held up implementation for nine months with red tape, while China collapsed. In contrast, after the Marshall Plan had passed, the first ship set sail for Europe within days. Chang and the Nationalists fled to Taiwan. The IPR myth that he was the heavy and Mao the hero fell apart. Taiwan emerged as a bastion of freedom and outproduced the world trade of the entire mainland. Mao, on the other hand, instituted totalitarian communism and slaughtered tens of millions of Chinese in purges lasting over two decades. On January 25, 1949, a young congressman declared before the House of Representatives, quote, Mr. Speaker, over the weekend we have learned the extent of the disaster that has befallen China and the United States. The responsibility for the failure of our foreign policy in the Far East rests squarely with the White House and the Department of State. The continued insistence that aid would not be forthcoming unless a coalition government with the communists were formed was a crippling blow to the national government, end quote. He reaffirmed this in a speech five days later, concluding, quote, This is the tragic story of China, whose freedom we once fought to preserve. What our young men had saved, our diplomats and our president, have frittered away. End quote. The young congressman was John F. Kennedy. The Strange War in Korea The Second World War and Vietnam have overshadowed the war sandwiched between them. The Korean conflict, like the loss of China, had roots in World War II diplomacy. When Harry Hopkins visited Stalin in May 1945, they agreed that Korea, a protectorate of Japan, should be ruled by a post-war international trusteeship. A foreign affairs article had proposed this in April 1944, recommending that, quote, 
A trusteeship of Korea will be assumed not by a particular country, but by a group of powers, say the United States, Great Britain, China, and Russia. End quote. In fact, Korea was divided in half, its disposition similar to Germany's. The U.S. occupied the south below the 38th parallel, and the Soviets the north, which they converted into a Marxist satrapy under Kim Il-sung. It is not unreasonable to say that there never would have been a communist regime in North Korea, nor would there have been a Korean War, had American negotiations and lend-lease shipments not brought the USSR into the Pacific theater. The Soviets trained a 150,000-man North Korean army, supplying it with tanks and fighter planes. But when the U.S. evacuated the South, we left only a constabulary force of 16,000 Koreans equipped with small arms. General Albert C. Wedemeyer, sent by Truman to evaluate the military situation in the Far East, reported that North Korea represented a distinct military threat to the South, which he recommended arming. But his warning was ignored and his reports suppressed from public knowledge. Dismayed by the negligence that led to the war, Wedemeyer became an outspoken critic of American foreign policy after retiring from active service in 1951. His revealing book, Wedemeyer Reports, was widely read. In January 1950, Kim Il-sung proclaimed in a New Year's Day statement that this would be Korea's year of unification and called for, quote, complete preparedness for war, end quote. What was the U.S. response to the saber-rattling? For two weeks, Dean Acheson, now Truman Secretary of State, declared that South Korea lay outside the, quote-unquote, defensive perimeter of the United States. This gave a clear signal to Kim, who invaded the South that June under Soviet auspices. Like Pearl Harbor, the invasion shocked the average American. But it is hard to believe that it shocked Truman, Acheson, and other high foreign policy officials who had watched these events unfolding. To review the war's course very concisely, the North Koreans had initial success. But General Douglas MacArthur's troops, after a brilliant landing at Incheon, drove them back across the 38th parallel, liberating nearly all of Korea up to the Yalu River, which marks the border of China. At this point, Communist Chinese armies entered the fray, pushing MacArthur's forces back. The war finally ended in stalemate, with the north-south frontier remaining close to what it had been. The war, like its prelude, had a number of anomalies. First, American soldiers were fighting as part of a UN police force, even though they made up 90% of it. Constitutionally, only the US Congress is authorized to declare war. But in the case of Korea, the president bypassed declaration of war. We had ratified the UN Charter and were subject to its statutes. In 1944, the CFR had prepared a confidential memorandum for the State Department that prophetically anticipated the circumstance. It noted, quote, A possible further difficulty was cited, namely, that arising from the constitutional provision that only Congress may declare war. This argument was countered with the contention that a treaty would override this barrier let alone the fact that our participation in such a police action as might be recommended by the International Security Organization need not necessarily be construed as war. End quote. One of the remarkable ironies of the Korean episode was that the Soviets, by simple exercise of their veto in the Security Council, could have easily prevented the UN's intervention on behalf of South Korea. But they staged a walkout, allegedly over the failure of the UN to seat Red China. They did not return until after the Korea vote, even though UN Secretary General Trig V. Lee expressly invited them to attend. Why would the Soviets pass up a conspicuous opportunity to protect their surrogate operation in Korea? This raises the possibility that their blunder was intentional. No less strange than the Soviets' conduct was Washington's prosecution of the war. American forces were required to fight under restrictions never before known in military annals. 
Establishment historians have always faulted General MacArthur for China's entry into the war, saying that the field commander's cockiness caused him to underestimate the risks of pushing to the Yalu. They ignore the consequences of the declaration issued by Harry Truman, two days after the North Koreans' invasion. Quote, I have ordered the 7th Fleet to prevent any attack on Formosa. As a corollary of this action, I am calling upon the Chinese government on Formosa to cease all air and sea operations against the mainland. The 7th Fleet will see that this is done. End quote. During the war, under the pretext of not inciting Peking, the U.S. Navy was ordered to protect the mainland from Chiang Kai-shek's troops on Taiwan, Formosa. This freed up the communist Chinese armies for their strike across the Yalu. Chiang also offered us his men for direct use on the Korean front. As a member of the UN, Taiwan presumably had a perfect right to partake in this UN action. But the proposition was rejected by General Marshall, whom Truman had now appointed Secretary of Defense. To halt the Chinese communists' advance across the Yalu, MacArthur ordered the river's bridges bombed. Within hours, this order was countermanded by General Marshall. MacArthur said of this, quote, I realized for the first time that I had actually been denied the use of my full military power to safeguard the lives of my soldiers and the safety of my army. To me, it clearly foreshadowed a future tragic situation in Korea and left me with a sense of inexpressible shock. End quote. American planes were forbidden to hit supply depots on the other side of the Yalu, or to pursue attacking MiGs whenever they retreated behind the Chinese border. All of this was purportedly to avoid, quote-unquote, a wider war. But it was precisely due to these restrictions coupled with the blockade of Taiwan that China felt bold enough to attack. General Lin Piao, commander of the Chinese forces, later said, quote, I never would have made the attack and risked my men and my military reputation if I had not been assured that Washington would restrain General MacArthur from taking adequate retaliatory measures against my lines of supply and communication. End quote. Probably thousands of American GIs died needlessly thanks to Washington's meddling in the methodology of warfare. General Mark Clark, who later signed the Korean armistice, said that it was, quote, beyond my comprehension that we would countenance a situation in which Chinese soldiers killed American youth in organized formal warfare, and yet we would fail to use all the power at our command to protect those Americans, end quote. This, then, was the new concept of, quote, unquote, limited war. We were not really in it to win it, but merely, as George Kennan put it, to, quote, unquote, contain communism. Of course, in an activity as desperate as combat, Victory requires all-out effort. One does not win a fight by shackling his own arms and donning a blindfold. In World War II, the U.S. spared no available tool, not even the atomic bomb, to ensure triumph. Quote-unquote, unconditional surrender was demanded of Germany and Japan, but no such terms were applied to the communists in Korea. Did the CFR know something the American public did not? As early as 1942, foreign affairs had been confidently forecasting Allied victory in the Second World War and discussing what should be done with post-war Europe. However, foreign affairs made no predictions of success for the Korean effort. And afterwards, the Council published a book, Korea, A Study of United States Policy in the United Nations, which mocked the idea of victory in war. Did a secret purpose lie in the shadows of Korea? Dean Acheson later said, quote, the only reason I told the president to fight in Korea was to validate NATO. End quote. Validating the UN was probably more to the point. In 1952, Foreign Affairs ran a lead article entitled Korean Perspective, in which the author summed up thus, quote, The burden of my argument, then, based on the meaning of our experience in Korea as I see it, is that we have made historic progress toward the establishment of a viable system of collective security. End quote. 
CFR members already used anti-communist pretenses to manipulate the United States into the Marshall Plan and NATO. A fair question then arises, in light of all the strange policies that induced the Korean conflict and governed its progress. If the war was a sick-minded contrivance to prove that the UN, world government, could effectively prevent aggression and should thus be granted more power. If so, it was a sorry joke on the American and Korean people. Men may be willing to die for their country. They may be willing to die for freedom. But who, as author James Burnham asked, wants to die for containment? One man who comprehended this was Douglas MacArthur. In April 1951, Truman fired him without a hearing, supposedly because his dissent with Washington had been made public, but more probably because he was determined to win rather than settle for stalemate. Replacing MacArthur in Korea was General Matthew Ridgway, whom David Halberstam called a quote-unquote military extension of Kennan and who later joined the CFR. The dismissal outraged Americans. Within 48 hours, 125,000 telegrams were sent to the White House. MacArthur returned home to the largest ticker tape parade in U.S. history. Before Congress, he declared that there is, quote-unquote, no substitute for victory. The Truman administration was finished. This is the end of part one of the audiobook for Shadows of Power by James Perloff on the same Defending Utah podcast platform.